Today's episode of the BS Podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Hiring can be difficult, but if you're currently hiring, you face new difficulties. Housing Wire, they could relate. They needed to hire a reporter to cover news stories on the U.S. housing market, so they turned to our presenting sponsor, ZipRecruiter, and that's how Housing Wire found Alexander Roja. She never imagined she could get a reporter job during COVID-19. And then she created a profile on ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter matched Alexandra to Housing Wire's reporter job because she was a great fit for the role. Housing Wire received her application only four hours after they posted their job. Just a few weeks later, Alexandra was hired. See how ZipRecruiter can help you hire. Try it now for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash BS. We're also brought to you by the HBO documentary, Showbiz Kids, which premieres tonight, Tuesday, July 14th at 9 p.m. on HBO. It is directed by Alex Winter, who's going to be coming on this podcast a little bit later. I was one of the executive producers on it. It is uh, Ringer Films is involved, and uh, it's a terrific documentary. And if you miss it tonight for whatever reason, you shouldn't because there's barely anything to watch. This is really good. If you like pop culture, if you care about Hollywood at all, there's no way you won't enjoy this doc. Uh, and if you miss it tonight, you can catch it on HBO On Demand. You can catch it on HBO Go. I think it'll eventually be on HBO Max. You can find it on all of those places. But uh, Showbiz Kids... It's really good. Uh, we also commemorated Showbiz Kids by doing um, a rewatchables on Stand By Me because uh, all, you know, built around four child actors, including Will Wheaton, who made an appearance in Showbiz Kids. So you can check that out on the, uh, on the rewatchables feed. One of my favorite movies, a movie that is 34 years old and could come out right now and basically be the exact same movie. It's, it's great and a great one to watch with your kids. Great one to watch on a date. Uh, it is just an immensely satisfying movie. So you can hear that on the rewatchables. Don't forget to check out all of our other podcast offerings. Stay tuned because we're going to be announcing a new addition to the Ringer Podcast Network a little bit later this week. We also launched the feed for Shay Serrano and Jason Concepcion's new podcast, The Connect, where they connect a couple movies, one that inspired. Uh, a more famous movie and what that connection was. It's an interesting idea. I think it's going to be a really cool podcast. If you want to subscribe to it, go find it and subscribe because I think it's launching next week. So there you go. Coming up, we're going to talk to Chris Haynes from Yahoo and Turner, who has been in the bubble for uh, about a week and a half. And we're going to talk to my friend Alex Winter, who directed Showbiz Kids. So there you go. First, our friends from Pearl Jam. All right, the bubble is in full swing. It is going surprisingly well so far. One of the first people there. I don't know, it was you and Malika Andrews, Chris Haynes. Uh, you guys are like the Lewis and Clark of the of the bubble. <laughs> You've been there for 10 days. What's it like? 10 days, it seems like longer than that, Bill. Uh, I actually get, I know, I've got here, I got here on the 1st. I got here on the 1st of July, so two weeks. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's even yeah. That's that's two solid weeks. Jesus. Yeah, got here two weeks ago. Uh, I mean, it's it's cool. It's interesting. I think things are going to change soon. But uh, you know, we're at we're at the Coronado Springs Resort here at Walt Disney World, and uh, 
You know, obviously I had to quarantine for seven days. That was, for me, that was tough, man. My room is not that big. So, uh, you know, I struggled staying in here. The only time, Bill, the only time I was allowed to go out was to when I was going to get your daily testing. And so I'm trying to work out, you know, still keep some shape. And so I would run across the, across the campus to, the, um, to test it every day, every day. But then the last day, Bill, I was like, you know what? Damn, I'm running all this time. I'm not even getting to, to chill outside, you know, for, for a little bit. You know what I mean? So I, I caught on last minute. And so I mosed and walked on the final day. I'm like, I want to stay outside as much as I can. But, uh, you know, that part was tough. But aside from that, man, it's been, uh, it's been a unique experience, to say the least. So they wouldn't even let you guys walk around, like do like a two hour power walk around. It, that's even nah, with a mask on, that didn't work. Nah, we couldn't. The only time we could walk out was to get tested. As soon as you get tested, you got to walk right back to your room. Um, they have, um, let me see if I have anything. Uh, they would give us, this is on video too, right, Bill? Yeah. This video, okay. So they will send us. They would send us during quarantine, just send us a whole bunch of, you know, items, food items. So this is like a whole bunch of soda and I'm not drinking soda. So right. I got like, I got one of these and all Gatorade, one of these and all water, other different um, juice options. And so they would send like just a whole bunch of food, snacks, just to get you through that quarantine. And um, I don't know, it was lackluster, man. I did, I couldn't. <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't stand much of it. Yeah, that's tough to be in the same place for that many days in a row. Hey, I mean, after about day four, you probably start losing it. Yeah, I, well, I was losing it day one, Bill. You know, <laughs> it's, it's, it was it was nice outside. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It was nice outside. You, you, you see other people walk by and, and enjoy the sunshine. And, you know, it just, just couldn't. So that, that, well, that so, was kind of tough for me. Well, so now the teams have arrived. And you you did your self quarantine thing. Are you must be allowed to walk around now and do stuff, right? Or is it still kind of regimented? Yeah, no, I'm allowed to walk around um, the area now. So I share. I share. So I'm at a hotel called the Casitas or something like that. But it's the same. It's a hotel that's on the same property as um, where the Bucks, the Lakers, Nuggets, Utah Jazz, they're staying as well. And so we cross paths all the time. You know, we share the same lobby. We share the same restaurant. As of right now, that can change. But we share the same restaurant and lobby space. And so it's, it's kind of like, Bill, you've been to Summer League. It's kind of like that. Mm. We're all, all the coaches and players are walking by. Uh, you know, we're told not to interact with the players. But, you know, they, they know me. They, they're coming up to me and. Yeah, I was going to say, you know a lot of these guys now. It'd be weird to just kind of walk by them like it, like they weren't and, there. And I've been talking to the league about that. You know, I, what what I'm going to do, you know? I'm going to go, hey, LeBron, I can't talk to you. Hey, Donovan Mitchell, <laughs> I can't. You know, I got to move, you know? So that, that's why I say things could change. But as of right now, that's that's kind of been the atmosphere dynamic. It's just been me and Malika here. And so you have the other riders, the other 10 or so riders who arrived Sunday. They have to quarantine for seven days. So uh, I, I expect things to change once they get out. We thought about, I initially we were going to send Kevin O'Connor. And mm-hmm. then the more we looked into it for what we were getting back, it actually seemed like it was more valuable for him to just stay home because he would be able to watch all the games and react and do pods and stuff like that. 
it, it was an interesting dilemma of, is this worth it or not? How did you decide it was worth it for you to go? Well, so for me, the league allowed the two broadcast partners to get here early. Mm. So that's why. So I'm here for right now for Turner. Yeah. I'm doing, doing sideline, uh, sidelines for TNT. And so I'm Oh, yeah. So you had to go. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so that's why me and Malika are here early. Um, and so that, that was, that was the only option I had, you know, I, I, t- yeah. I took on the assignment. So I had, I actually, it's funny. I got probably a, it's just how fluid these talks were and the negotiations were as far as the restart goes. I probably had a two day notice as far as like, if you want to do this, you got to leave in a couple of days. Right, <laughs> right, right. I'm like, oh, cause I was planning on, you know, getting here like before the rules, before the rules came out, I was planning on getting here like a week before the season started. And it was like, uh, nah, we, you know, I think that I got word on a Friday that they wanted me to go Thursday or Friday that they wanted me to go. And I had to leave Monday morning. Well, we should mention you have like, how many kids do you have at home? Like 12, 17? I got, I got 12 divided by four. So my math is horrible. I got four. I got four. You have four daughters, right? I got four girls. So my oldest daughter, she's actually going off to college. Oh my God. She's going off to college. So I'm going to miss, I'm going to miss her, you know. What kind of, what kind of tears? Who cried? Everybody cried when you left? Pretty much. Uh, no, none of my daughters. Well, my youngest daughter cried. Wife cried. That's about it. That's my about da- it. My daughter's 15. She would absolutely cry if I was leaving for three and a half months. There would, be, there would be waterworks. Nah, I didn't, no, no, no watershed from my teenagers. Uh, my youngest, my youngest daughter, yes. Well, the thing is now with FaceTime and stuff like that, it's not as crazy to go you could still feel like some sort of connection you could see faces stuff like that if this was happening 20 years ago and you're uh, just doing phone calls and that's it i think it would be a lot more jarring to be away for that long yeah no doubt but you know i'm here for a long haul bill you know that's, yeah. that's until early october and so that's going to be rough man that's going to be rough so you. were you worried at any point that this might fall apart because there was about i would say 10 to 14 days ago once we started to actually get close to it and the Florida numbers were spiking, I felt like it was 50-50 that this was going to happen because I, I was worried about a snowball effect where a couple of players are like, fuck that, I'm not going. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes dominoes and now all of a sudden 12 guys aren't going and then who knows. But now that everybody's actually in the bubble, it seems like this is going to work. Were you worried that this might not work? You know, I still, I still don't know if it's going to work completely, but I'll say this, like Adam Silver was very adamant about getting this restart going. And um, I think once the players understood that there's significant financial ramifications that can be had mm. if this season didn't resume. So knowing all those factors, I figured they will come up to some type of solution and pathway to get this thing started again. So uh, I, I, I wasn't surprised that they got it going. Um, you know, I saw the numbers. I saw the spikes in Florida. And I started thinking, like, well, would it, can they change the venue all of a sudden? Because Las Vegas really wanted this event. Right. Now, obviously, the players really wanted it in Vegas. <laughs> so, uh, but it, there, there would just be too many loopholes in Vegas to overcome. But, uh, you know, I, I wasn't surprised at all that they got it back going. Yeah, if they did Vegas, I think there was a way to shut off 
like the bottom part of the strip where Mandalay and Four Seasons are and stuff like that and basically completely shut it so it's a bubble. But then there's a whole casino aspect of it that I'm not sure they would have been able to control. There's a whole casino aspect building. I'm pretty sure a lot of players are familiar with yeah. some of the individuals that reside in Las Vegas. You know, they don't right. know too many. They don't know too many individuals over here in the Walt Disney World area. You know, right, so right. It, there's a, there's a higher risk of getting in trouble over there. For sure. When did you start thinking about the actual rest of the season and playoffs? Just as somebody who analyzes basketball for a living, because I am, I didn't want to let my guard down with that stuff yet. And this past week, I've started to get my mindset into, oh shit, basketball is going to happen. Yeah. I got to like remember what the storylines were and who's on what team, who's not there, what the matchups yeah. could be. And I'm kind of like slowly going back. It feels like it was a million years ago that the season stopped. When mm-hmm. when do you when does your brain shift to? Oh yeah, somebody's going to win the title this year. When um. Like I said, I've I've always I've always figured that they would find a way to make this thing happen again, but it it wasn't until the league you know officially announced uh, that there was agreement to get this started, and so that's when I was like, damn, like I'm really gonna have to leave, like I'm really gonna have to go, you know, mm. and uh, that's when it kind of started to hit, but obviously, it, it didn't really hit me hard until I got that call, right. <laughs> about three days before I had to leave that, you know, you got to go away now and, and go away now for three months. You know, you I'm starting to out. get, I'm starting to get excited for the hoops, but I, I still feel, I felt this way when they announced it. There's too many teams. I, yeah. I think they probably could have settled on 14 and it would have been fine. And it would have removed a lot of variables for just a couple hundred extra people that maybe didn't need to be there. I don't really see the point of like, even before Bradley Beal bowed out, the Wizards being involved. Um, who cares? Oh, they have a puncher's chance to get in the eighth seed. Well, great. They're going to get killed by Milwaukee. Why is Sacramento there? Why is Phoenix there? Why is San Antonio there? Yeah. I, I wonder, do you think if they had to do this over again, if they would have lowered the number of teams and maybe had 14, given the one seeds a buy in round one, what do you think they would do if they could do this again? I don't think they would change anything, Bill. Because I think uh, they look at the attraction of Zion Williamson. Uh, they look at the attraction of a Portland Trailblazer squad that's right there, and it's like, and, and I'm not, I'm not going out there saying they made exceptions strictly for the Warriors, but but Zion they might have. Was, <laughs> but yeah, let's, they, they say, might let's have. say it. They, they really have. might have. Yeah, they could have. They're, they're a draw, and so the thing is, if you're going to let New Orleans in, then you have to see, okay, who are the other teams that are in that range because they're going to feel some type of way about being left out. So I think that's I think that played a large part the reason why we had so many teams in here. And I had, I want to say a month ago, you know, I interviewed Damian Lillard. He had that statement that he didn't want to go to the bubble if his team didn't have a chance um, at all of making the playoffs. Like if there was no avenue for him to go, he doesn't want to play. He's going to sit it out. Um, obviously that has changed, but the, the Portland, the Portland Trailblazers, they were the only team that voted against this 22 team format. They felt it should have been 20, mm. 20 teams. And so I told Dame, the reason I brought Dame up, I told him even before it was uh, even before it was final that it was going to be 22 teams. I told him, I said, you know what? Due to this pandemic and this virus, I said, I don't know if Blazers deserve to be there because you guys have what they played, 50 games so far, something like, like that. Like you have 50 games to show, to prove if you should be there or not. 
And I understand you had injuries. Nurkis wasn't there. Zach Collins wasn't there. Rodney Hood. I understand, but that's how it is. And so I felt like just for safety purposes, just bring in the top 16. Just bring in the eight from East Conference and start that way. That way you're not bringing in an extra amount of bodies, players, and staff onto the campus because we don't know how this thing is going to play out. So that's the way I felt, but I wasn't surprised at all that um, they added teams like New Orleans to give them a shot. And if you added New Orleans, then you had to add teams that were in that same distance away from that AFC. You know, it's funny you're saying this because now that you're saying it, I'm thinking that four-game cushion where if you're within the four games, you get to be in the play-in. It does seem like that was specifically designed for New Orleans. Like, they could have said it was a two-game cushion. Then that makes it a lot harder. But, I mean, ultimately, if they can get Lakers-New Orleans in round one with a healthy Zion, I'm sure that would be their dream situation. The problem for them is in the East, you're going to have the seven seed and the eight seed is just going to suck, you know, yeah. and and yeah. maybe even Indiana too, if there's no Oladipo, they're going to be a little bit limited. Then you have Utah. They lost Bogdanovich. It, it really might be a situation where you have the three teams, maybe three and a half, if you include the Celtics, depending on how they look, that are just way above everybody else. And we're going to feel that pretty early. And the Pelicans have the, the softest schedule during this week start. Oh, you're saying but conspiracy I, with that? No, I'm not saying that. I'm just stating the facts. I'm just stating the facts. But okay. if you talk to the Pales, you talk to the Pales, they said their their schedule was actually, let me see, it was softer during the, the remaining regular season. And so they, they feel like that there's not so it evens like out. This is not, yeah, that's how they that's how they feel. Who do you think ultimately was the superstar driving this the hardest to have the bubble come back? Do you think it was LeBron or Chris? Well, I think well, it was, it was yeah, probably both of them, both of them for sure. But we 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 knew where LeBron stood all along. He made it. He made that declaration early on in the process. Uh, they they understood. Like we talking to Chris Paul and LeBron James. Even though LeBron James is not a part of the executive committee, he, he does have power and sway. And uh, you know, I, I reported on whenever it was that superstar call that it was, it was yeah. LeBron. Uh, Chris Paul, Kawhi Leonard, Damian Lillard, uh, Westbrook, you know, I forgot who else, Stephen Curry. But they all said, like, we got to make this work. We got to go out there and play. And look, Bill, can you imagine, like, say, say the player said, nah, we're not going, we're not, we're not risking our lives. We're not risking our safety, right? Then the owners from them will, they will opt out of that CBA for sure. Okay. And they, st- they still might anyways. but. If they opted out, then they would say, you know what, guys, you guys cost us, you know, millions and billions of dollars by not coming out. We have to factor that into these new CBA uh, agreements. So, you know, I think the players looked at that and felt, when I say players, I'm going to say the superstar players, they looked into that and said, you know, if they can promise us, they can give us the safest measures as possible over there, it's in our best interest to go out there and play. That call was the most positive moment of this whole last four months when, because I was kind of, I'd been kind of waiting for, if this is going to happen, the superstars have to kind of drive it a little bit. I thought the dynamic of who was on the call was really interesting. And the fact that Dame was on the call um, for a variety of reasons was really interesting. You've, I mean, you were, how old, how old was he when you started covering him? 
Was he a rookie, or were you, were you there when rookie, he was a rookie? Yeah, I, yeah, I was. I was his beat writer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you've watched him evolve over the last eight years. When did you feel like he was an actual franchise superstar? This was a guy you could build a 50-win playoff team around. Man, I, I, I knew he was special. He came in the summer league, and I know it's summer league, but he came in the summer league and just dominated that performance, man, dominated that whole outing. And so I knew there was some type of potential. But back then, and even still today, Bill, like, the point that's when it started to slowly become a point guard league. That's when the point guards were even Nash was at his at, at his peak, I think, at that point. Yeah, like and tail so, end. Yeah, tail end. He was with the Lakers. I, the reason I know he's with the Lakers, that's funny. Dame, because Dame is the one that injured Steve Nash. First game of Steve Nash's oh, yeah, Laker you're career. Right. Yeah. And it was Dame's first game. And he injured Steve Nash. Like the knee, knee to knee, Steve Nash never recovered. That was it. Uh, so I kind of went off topic right there. But I, it was just a, it's just a dirt of point guards out there. I, I didn't, I, I'll be honest, I didn't think he would climb up to that category. But to see him evolve and when LaMarcus Aldridge, you know, requested his trade and you know, eventually became a free agent with the San Antonio, you know, he just got more leeway with organization. And he's just, I told him, you know, I, I'm honest. I, I didn't see this coming. I thought he would be good, maybe make an all-star or two. But, you know, he's definitely up there. Somebody you got to consider. You know, it's debatable who's the top point guard in the league. Most people will say Steph, but, you know, you can't well, the league, that. the league really evolved in his favor, which, you know, you think like by his second year, 2013-14 season, that's when the threes really started to kick in. And okay. I remember I found this old email. We had a Grantland NBA preview email. We had done this whole four-hour meeting about topics we wanted to write about before the start of the mm -hmm. season. And this is before the 2014 season. And one of the one of the angles that was in the email was like, are threes going to ruin basketball? And I think I think we probably actually even wrote the piece because you could kind of feel things shifting where it's like, wait a second, are these are these teams going to be shooting 33s a game? Is this mm -hmm. where this is going? This that seems crazy. And obviously that not only is that what happened, but it's what happened, you know, on steroids. And for somebody like Dame, it was perfect. But I always thought the whole LaMarcus Dame thing was so fascinating to watch from afar where for whatever reason, LaMarcus, it, it, it was like the classic movie poster where LaMarcus didn't kind of want to accept that both faces should be the same size on the poster. He had that thing like, this is kind of my team. I'm not, and you could feel the Dame thing coming. Why do you think he didn't accept that this was like the perfect guy to play with? Well, Marcus is a guy who, um, you know, he he felt he was underappreciated his whole time there in Portland. Like when he came in, the team was Brandon Royce. Uh, then at a certain point, they tried to anoint Greg Oden um, right. to be in the, to be in the face, and so he always felt like he was being dismissed. And so, Lamarcus, you know, he didn't really vibe with the with the the culture of Portland. It's not a lot of diversity, you know, over right. there. <laughs> so he didn't he didn't get out much. Um, and another thing too, like Dame is just like no ego. Man, I think some people have an ego to a certain extent, but I'm just talking about his ego is not to the point where he feels like he's above uh, anyone else. And so I remember there would be situations when, like the last couple of years of Lamarcus being there. I think they played they played two years together, I believe. My mind serves me right. No, um, I. But, 
I think it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was three, I think. Three, play three? Okay. Yeah. So there would be situations where the Blazers will pitch commercial ideas, poster ideas, and to LaMarcus, and he would turn them down. And he just like, he wasn't outgoing like that. They would yeah. turn them down. And then they go to Dame, and Dame's like, yeah, I got you. You know, this, this kept happening. This kept happening. And sooner or later, now you know it, the whole city is flooded with, <laughs> with images of Damian Little. Yeah. yeah. And so and and that and that that helped to build his popularity. And so now, you know, he's considered, you know, Mr. Blazer, arguably the all-time greatest Blazer uh, right. you know, in history. So, and I think once Lamarcus started seeing that, I think he probably took it as like, they're trying to give him my spot. And that's not that's not what it was. And Damian Lamarcus ended up talking about that later on. Uh, just about that confusion because Dame never had a problem with LaMarcus. I don't think LaMarcus had a problem with Dame. It was just the fact that he probably thought there was inner workings going on behind the scenes that were trying to catapult Dame over him. And uh, that rubbed him the wrong way. And then, uh, you know, he goes off to San Antonio. Well, remember his last Portland year? He was fucking awesome that year. I think he was like 25 and 10. And in the playoffs, he was like 26 a game. and And it was really like, he hit a level that I I, I got to be honest, I didn't think he was going to be able to get to. I never thought he was going to be like a 25 and 10 guy. And the combo of them, you think about, he ends up going to San Antonio. We don't know Kawhi is going to be Kawhi yet. Yeah. And it was like, wow, he's going to San Antonio for Popovich? But then he ends up with Kawhi. So he's played with two of the 10 best players of this decade, but has, I don't think, ever even gotten to a conference final. It's going to, he's going to be an interesting Hall of Fame case. Now, yeah, and, and you look at Bill, you look at both situations. He goes into a situation he felt like he was pitched on being the man. Right. You know, they didn't, so they didn't know the Kawhi thing was coming. Didn't know it was coming, just like you didn't know Dame was coming. And so <laughs> he left to be in a situation to get away from the situation he was at. And then ends up walking into another one that is even, uh, you know, an even worse situation, if, you know, if you're looking at it from this standpoint. Yeah, he's had a, some interesting what ifs during his career. Like, even you think when he got drafted, we did the redraftables of that draft, and Chicago takes him too and then flips him for Ty Thomas. Yeah. And yeah. he really just should have gone to Chicago and he would have been with this young nucleus that, uh, you know, instead of going to Portland where they get two years of Brandon Roy, then he gets hurt and it's just basically uh, craters until Lillard miraculously shows up thanks to Billy King. I, I remember going, I think it was Lillard's rookie year. And I he, I went to a Clipper game and I had really good seats. It was one of the few times I've sat courtside on the actual, on the, when you're at like midcourt, which is yep. actually a weird yep. way to watch a game. But Chris Paul just like manhandled Lillard. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm watching it going, I like Lillard, but man, this is like watching somebody at the all Madden level play somebody at like the all rookie level. Yeah. He had so many more yeah. tricks. He was so much more powerful and it was really, and I left that game thinking like, yeah, Lillard will be fine. He'll be, he'll shoot some threes. He'll be fun, but mm-hmm. he'll never be anything. And then to watch the way he evolved has been, you know, spectacular. And I'm with you. I, I think there's a statistical case for him versus Curry. I, st- I would still take Curry every time. Cause yeah, I think- that, that, that's, that's, you know, I, you know, I think it's, that, that's, that's fair. That's fair. 
Hey, wanted to take a quick break to remind you, Showbiz Kids, our new documentary from Ringer Films and director Alex Winter, it premieres on HBO July 14th tonight, 9 p.m. And if you don't DVR it or you don't watch it live, you can eventually catch it on demand later this week. Really proud of this one. It's an immensely satisfying doc. And uh, and if you like Hollywood and pop culture at all, highly recommend it. Wanted to make sure that it was on your radar. It's not like there's anything to watch right now. Um, and this is really good and you'll really enjoy it. So Showbiz Kids, HBO, 9 p.m., July 14th, which is tonight. Check it out. Back to Chris Haynes. Yeah, I've always admired your story. You know, I'm a big fan of creating your own breaks. I know I certainly did way, way, way back when. Sure. But you you basically made everything that happened to you happen. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you were what, in your late 20s? when yeah, I was uh, 28. And you're working as a security guard and a freelance MBA writer and trying to make stuff happen. You already had kids at that point. Like what, what kept driving you? What made you not want to give up? Bill, I just, I just wanted a couple of leave. I wanted a couple of leave. And, uh, you know, I graduated from college late. I took the 10 year plan, education plan. Uh, you know, you have dreams You know, I played college ball. You know, you had dreams of trying to make it that way. Then reality hits. You're not good enough. Yeah. And so um, I wanted a couple of leave. That was it. And so I'm about 28 at this time. I'm in Fresno, really never left Fresno, Fresno, California, really left Fresno all my life. And, and uh, I have friends that are going to jail. I got, you know, all type of shit going on around me that's not positive. So I'm like, and I've already had, at that time, I had two daughters, my two oldest daughters. So I'm like, man, I don't want, I really don't want to raise them around all this. And uh, so I graduated from college, Bill, and I'm like, I want a couple of NBA. I want to write. I want to write. And so I started looking at games and I would just write like stories off of games and send them to different publications. And they were like, some of them was like, yeah, you got talent. You're cool. We can work with you, but you have to be in the NBA market in order to, um, in order for us to give you a, a break. We can't yeah. pay you, but we'll get you credential. And so when they said that, man, somehow I convinced the wife to move to Portland. I picked Portland because I was just hella scared to go to LA. I'm like, there's no way I'm making it to LA. And in Sacramento, I did a one year of junior college basketball in Sacramento. So I've been there. Like, let's go to Portland. It's not too far, but it's just close enough that if I fail, we could come back home. It was the bill. Going to Portland was the best decision, one of the best decisions of my career, man. Like, if I pick any other opportunity, I don't know that it works out, but I go out there to Portland and I couldn't get a job. And here I got a bachelor's degree in kinesiology. You know, that's what the degree you need to be a PE teacher. And I could not find a job. The only job I could find was being a security guard at high school and a security guard at a, an apartment complex. So I did that during the day. And then at night when the Blazers were home, I would go, you know, cover some of those games. And it, I did that for a year straight. Who were you covering the games for? It was Slam Online, Slam, Slam, Slam Online, and it was uh, a site that's defunct now, Pro Basketball News. Um, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's what I did. I did that for a whole year. And then, um, like, towards the end of this year, I always got to credit Dwight James, longtime sports columnist there in, in Portland. He's working for Comcast Sportsnet Northwest, and they're the, they're the TV partner of the Blazers. And they were looking for 
but of course their first Blazer beat writer, somebody to cover the team, go to all the games, be on TV three, four times a day. Long story short, I got the job, uh, and that's how I went on. So I went from never flying on planes, went from never being on TV to just flooded with TV obligations. So I just learned on the fly. That's kind of really how I got started. That's amazing. And the best part is you picked the right city because that is a top five. We care about basketball more than anything. Else. I always call them the Portland soccer moms, the fans, because <laughs> they don't have any other teams. Yeah. It's like no. it's like all the four major sports combined into one team. So they they care about 365 days a year, every single thing that's happening with them. And that bill, that's funny because you're so you hit the nail on the head right there with that point. And that's how I would cover the team. I would notice like. Will Barton at the time, he was like the fourth or 15th man on that squad. He wouldn't get any burn. But yeah. when you write something over there about Will Barton, they care. Right. They care. But when I went to Cleveland to cover LeBron when he uh, announced he was going back, I tried it a little bit, that same format over there that I did in Portland and Cleveland. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to write it. Matthew Dallavadova, no. You know, Joe Harris at that time, no. It's LeBron, 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 sprinkling Kyrie Irving and, and Kevin Love, but LeBron, 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 and that's that's I, I, that's when I realized, okay, different markets calls for different ways of covering teams. I noticed when uh, it, when I was writing columns back when I used to be a writer, and they would take like the paragraph I wrote about the Blazers, and it would be this long blog post on Blazers Edge about Blazers something Edge. I said oh, about oh, whatever. Blazers Edge. Yep. And then when I start, when the podcast really started taking off, and I, I would like have Zach Lowe on, and we would have this throwaway two minute conversation about the Blazers, and it would be another like two thousand. I was like, these guys are crazy. I kind of loved it though. I love how passionate they're. How long? How many years did you spend in Cleveland? I did two years. So I left after. Um I left after they won that championship. And then I went to ESPN and and started uh covering the Warriors from there. What was your LeBron strategy when you when you Le- got to the team? How did you handle, all right, I gotta win this guy over, but he's one of the most famous uh Americans we have. How do I cover this guy? Yeah, I had a, a little bit of a relationship with him before I went to Cleveland. And I think obviously that played into me getting a job. It was funny, like mm-hmm. I was in Portland, Bill. So I was covering, I was covering the Blazers and where I came from, like Bill, like all I wanted was to have a job, a car and nine to five. And I felt like I made in life. Like that was it. That was it. And so like, as my life went on and I started, my career started to take off, you know, I started getting bigger goals. And so I'm in Portland now and I feel like I made it. Yeah. I'm a little local celebrity, whatever you want to call it. I'm on TV three. Four times a day. Like, I'm loving it. Like, this is the pinnacle. People are talking to you when you're getting a soda at the 7-Eleven. Yeah. No, 7-Eleven. You walk through the concourse. They want to take pictures with you. and all of yeah. that. So, I made it. This is it. But, Bill, this is, this is what changed. Like, I started seeing the respect that national writers get when they come into town. Like, so you see a, a national writer come into town. And you see they open up, you know, the red carpet for Take yeah. them to areas of the practice facility that beat riders aren't allowed to go in, you right. know. And then you see, and you see that night or that morning, they come with a drop. This story has so many news nuggets in it, you know. You're like, damn, they just gave them all that access and this and that. And so you just saw the level of respect that national riders get. And I'm like, I want that. 
I want that. Mm. So from that from that day on, you know, I you know, then I started noticing the game. I'm like, man, there's certain stories that local people just don't get. You know what I mean? I'm doing all this work trying to provide the best coverage possible, but there's still stories that don't come to me because I'm this local guy. You know, they don't think I have that reach or whatever. Well, because so it's because every player has their own little inner council of their yeah. media strategist, their PR guy, whatever. And if they're going to give a story to somebody, they're not giving it to, to the guy in Portland. They're exactly. giving it to the guy at ESPN.com or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And people don't know, like players, they don't, you know, they, they don't control most of the time where the story goes to, you know? Mm. So, so my mission from that point on was like, all right, I want to become a national guy. And so I felt like in order to that last year in Portland bill, I started venturing out. Like, so the Portland Blazer stories, Portland Trailblazer stories that I would break, you know, those same contacts, those same executives, those same ages, those same people you talk to about the Blazers. I started asking them about other players now on other teams, you know what I mean? And so I started breaking stories on other teams while I was a Portland Trailblazer beat writer. And then people started looking on the internet. People started saying, well, who's this cat from Portland breaking this Miami Heat story? What credibility does he have? And so I'm like, okay, they still not, they still not giving me my respect. I'm like, all right. And so when um, LeBron announced, I felt like I had to make that next move. I got to go on a bigger platform. So when LeBron announced he was going back to Cleveland, I'm like, okay, that's a step. And so I know I'm going or dancing around your question, but that's why I, uh, Cleveland job, they had like over a thousand applicants. And uh, I had a relationship with LeBron and his people before that, because I started the year prior. You put the work news in. Outside. Yeah. yeah bre breaking news outside of Portland. And so that's how, that's how I was able to get in. And, you know, he already knew me when I got there. And it, it just, it just grew from the, my time. Covering. By that time, by the time he got back to Cleveland, he had he really understood how to handle the media. And there's been some good pieces written about this where he would have his four to six guys and he would kind of I always call it watering the plant. Yeah. He made sure he watered the plant with with certain guys, right? And when you're around somebody every day like that, it's hard not to it's hard not to feel like, well, I'm definitely not gonna snake that guy. This guy's this guy's been good to me. And I, yeah. I think some guys never realize that. I think he's been one of the best guys to to kind of not only realize that, but the way he's handled it. Because it, it really does seem like he handles the media probably as well as anybody other than maybe Curry, right? Yeah, he, he gets them. Like, he, he, get, he gets the media. I, and in Cleveland, it was myself, Jason Lloyd, um, Joe Varden, and Dave McMenamin. And yeah. so, yeah, he, he, he would take care of us. But, Bill, I remember, and I've had this approach every ever since then, but I can't remember the story. I wrote a story about like his leadership tactics because that first like five months of his tenure, you know, it was like when it was like subtle shots being taken at Kevin Love online. And, right. Uh, it was like little things going on. And so I wrote about his leadership tactics and how things must be changed and adjusted. And so I remember like a few days later, he pulled me to the side. He was like, yo, Chris, he said, I don't mind you writing or taking shots if you feel it's necessary. But he was like, at least come to me and ask me why it is that I do it this way. Why do I treat this player that way? Why do I do that? He said, now, if you still feel that you need to do it your way and write what you want to write, then go ahead. But at least get my perspective. 
And he said, I won't fault you for writing what you write, but at least hear from me why it is I'm doing it this way. And so from that point on, Bill, I was like, you know, that's that's fair. That's that's, that's logical, you know, because I'm just seeing it from what I see. You know, I don't right. know the behind the scenes of context. I don't know context of why, why, why he did that that night. And so from that point on, like, if I have a negative story uh, or negative subplot to, to write about an athlete, you know, I'll, I'll text him, I'll call him, I'll hit him up and say, hey, I'm going this way. Uh, you guys want to get your perspective. And that's the right thing to do. It is. It's, it's, it, it it's kind of, it's, I guess, a heads up. But as you give the heads up, you might get something, you know, you might get yeah. one more piece of info that you need out of it. So you left after 2016, yeah. right? You, and then you went to uh, Oakland? Uh, yeah, then I went to the Bay, correct. So did you see the Kyrie departure thing coming? Like when you left Cleveland in 2016, were you like, these guys only have one year, one more year together and, and I bet it blows up? I, I didn't see it getting to, I didn't see it getting to that point. But obviously there was friction throughout those two years. It was never like it seemed like a lot of those interactions that those teams had, Cleveland seemed like they were forced a little bit. Because LeBron is a guy, guy, he likes the teams to all be together. Like if if one person has an event, we're all going. Yep. You know what I mean? I'm having my party. I need to see you all there. And it, it seemed a little bit forced over there with Cleveland. Like with the Lakers, like they genuinely love each other. Like they genuinely out supporting. I was at an event. JaVale McGee invited me to in L.A. And majority of the whole team was there, including LeBron and A.D., like they get down like that, and so it, it seemed it seemed for. So I wasn't surprised Kyrie went that route, but um, I guess looking back now, I guess you, you could have seen it coming. And Ben, I want to say this real quick: when I went to ESPN to take that job over the, in the Bay, I did not want that job. I did not want that job because I felt like I covered the Cavs for two years. Right, this is the highest beat pinnacle you can have before coming national because that was my whole aim like i'm going national and so they talked me into it taking that you know taking the job and going to cover the warriors and i still espn did me wonders like i was still able to break news outside the warriors but i was still heavily focused on the warriors but i remembered i was like i was concerned about the image the perception you go from covering the Cavs in the middle of this rivalry and then going over covering the Warriors. Right. You know what I mean? Like, I was like, and so I didn't hear from Brian the whole time since I left to go cover the Warriors. And so it was Christmas. Bill, Christmas Day game. And Warriors cast in Cleveland. First time I've seen LeBron since, uh, since I moved over. And so I'm walking to the media room at halftime. And LeBron is walking off the court, going into the locker room. He sees me and yells, you train ass, blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? And I'm like, this fool. <laughs> like, <laughs> you train ass, blah, blah, blah. You know, so I'm like, oh, this fool. Okay. So I walk, but I was concerned. And then at the end of that game, I try to go in the locker room. And LeBron's security is like, you can't go in. I'm like, I can't go in. I'm like, it's not immediate in there. He's like, yeah, you can't go in. I'm like, right now, what's going on, man? Why well, can't go in? He's like, bro, I'm sorry. I'm like, can you get somebody else? And so one of the PR guys come in, I think it was Tad, 
He comes over, pulls me out. I'm like, Tam, what's going in? Why can't go in the locker room? Come on in, Chris. Come on in. What well, as soon as I walk in, Brian's just laughing. <laughs> just oh, that's laughing. hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> but so, I didn't want to take that job, man. So he's probably 10% did feel like you were a traitor. That you, that so. you jump sides. It's it's an awkward feeling. Like, and I was concerned about that perception, not from him, but just like I never seen, I've never heard of anybody covering the Pistons. Like doing well, Lakers or let's go Lakers and Celtics. I've never yeah. heard of a beat writer covering Lakers in the middle of that rivalry and then going over a couple of Celtics. And then flipping sides. Yeah, that's interesting. I've never, even though I don't care who wins, but it's just like, and so I remember when I went to Golden State, Draymond was a little bit iffy on me initially. He was like, oh, you're a spy. You're sent over here by the Cavs. <laughs> <laughs> and they were serious. Like, he was serious. And so I'm like, I'm like, Trey, I ain't got, man, come on, man. I, ain't you got, know, I don't care who wins. I, I think that 2017 Warriors team is in the running for best team of all time. And it's interesting because I, I listened to the podcast I did with Duran. I did six of them, but the first one. Yeah. So it's like March 2017. Mm-hmm. And he's so freaking happy. Yeah. And you can, and it's like everything he ever wanted was happening with that team and how unselfish they were and the level of basketball and just not dealing with all the bullshit and OKC and kind of being able to be himself, all that stuff. And you can really hear it the whole podcast. Yeah. And then I would say the fifth one we did, which was during the 17-18 season, it felt like something had shifted. And my theory had always been he he went mano a mano against LeBron in 2017 finals. I did a podcast with him the 36 hours after they won the title or 30 hours, whatever. And he really felt like I'm the best player in the league. Now everybody knows. I went toe-to-toe with LeBron. My team won. I was I played better than him. And then he didn't get the credit for it. And it was like, ah, yeah. you you chased the title. Doesn't matter. You, blah, blah, blah. And, and all the stuff he thought he was going to get, he didn't get. And I don't think he was ever the same. What What's your theory on the whole thing? I think um, Kevin Durant was he he was the best player on that team. Period. Yes, like Kevin Durant is a, he's a great player, but he wasn't. It was Stephen Curry's team, and I don't think he had a problem with that. But I think it was too strong of a narrative that he wasn't a true warrior. You know, it was a true too strong of a narrative that. He had to jump over there to beat LeBron, even though head to head, KD did his thing. You know that big shot, that big three over LeBron. That's an iconic shot. That's an both, iconic moment. Both finals, he was both he finals, was great. One one, he went right yeah. at him. Yeah, went right at him. Like he was that guy, but it was just still the fact that he was on the Warriors. People were not giving him his credit. And um, yeah, you definitely saw, you definitely saw the his vibe change uh, from the first year to to the next. Um, and then, you know, obviously with the, with the Draymond, um, incident that happened in LA, but I want to say this about KD and it pertains to that, um, to that incident. Is he sensitive? Yeah. He'll tell you he's, he's sensitive. I mean, you you know, him pretty well too, um, Bill, but, uh, I have so much respect for, for him and his character. I had, I was starting my own, I was starting my podcast, posted up. With Chris Haynes when I first got my full time national gig at Yahoo, right? Yep. So I started my podcast, 
And I asked him if he would be my first guest. And he said, yes. And I'm like, great, great. I got KD, my first guest. Have my podcast popping cool. So that was a week before. No, excuse me. A few days before that incident in L.A. So that incident in L.A. happens. He was supposed to do it a week from now. So then two days later, that incident in L.A. with Draymond happens. And I'm like, fuck. Damn. Like, okay, this is content. But there's no way he's still doing this. Like, because he shut off media. Like, if you remember, he didn't talk for weeks yeah. after that. You know how KD gets. Like, when he's, you know, when he's, when he's mad, like, he just shuts off everybody completely. So I'm trying to be patient. Like, I'm trying to be, like, the days are ticking. It's getting a few days to the day we were supposed to do it, which is a Monday. And so they played the Rockets, I believe, on a Friday. And I haven't seen KD. I haven't spoken to him. And they were in Houston. So I made the trip to Houston for that game. It was a big game, Warriors-Rockets. But I really made that trip over there, like, to, to see where we were at. Like, you know, are we still going to do this? Because Yahoo has like, all the equipment, the crew, the camera crew. Like, they're invested. We already paid to have everything over there. So I go over there in the Rockets locker room. Excuse me, Warriors locker room before the game. And KD got his earphones on. And he's, like, in his zone. And, you know, you can tell he doesn't want to be messed with. But I got to go over there. I got to go over there. So I go over there. I'm like, KD, what's up? Small chat. And I was like, hey, bro, I know this ain't the time, but I just want to make sure. Are we still good for Monday? He's like, Chris, get the fuck out of here, man. I don't want to talk about this right now. Get the fuck out of here or something like that, right? So I'm like, all right, well, you know, no hard feelings, but just keep it on your mind. And so, yeah, you know, I didn't take offense to it, you know, but I had to go over there and say something. But um, the days went by. Still no confirmation. The days went by. It was the night, Sunday night. And he still hasn't talked to anybody. Sunday night, I text him late, like 11. I'm like, KD, you know, it's supposed to be tomorrow at noon. You know, please still do it. You still do it. I got you, bro. I'll be there. Came and gave me the first interview for an hour. Gave me the first interview about the whole incident with Draymond. And I was super and jealous was, of it. Oh, you remember that, Bill? <laughs> <laughs> You're talking to over-competitive Bill. Of course I remember Oh, it. man. You remember I was like, Bill. oh, man. Chris Haynes got man, this. Damn it. Bill. Hey, <laughs> that's, all the, that's all the shit that went in to get that, man. Like, yeah. I didn't know I was going to get it until the late night before. But um, he, he held his word and he did it, man. Uh, so I'm, I'm appreciative for, for that. I went to that game and I watched the whole thing. And, you know, I'm... I'm the body language doctor. When I go to basketball uh-huh. games, I love watching the body language. So I, I watched everything, including Draymond not passing to him at the tail end of regulation, yeah. Yeah. how KD reacted to it. And I just followed them because I was like, ooh, KD really kind of showed him up there. That this mm-hmm. is unusual. And then yeah. I just watched the huddle and the whole thing happened. And I knew it was bad. I was tweeting from it. I think I might even videotape some of it and did a couple tweets that night. And usually I don't do that, but I was like, this, something happened here. And you could see from even when they went back out at overtime, stuff like that. My theory though, is that it was going to happen at some point. That just happened to be the game. I I think Draymond, especially he's he's somebody who just loves being on a team so much and the concept of team. He's so old school. It's Mm -hmm. like, you're, you're on my side or you're against me. And that, and that's how he feels about everything. 
And as soon as KD had that one foot out the door heading into that third season, I might stay, I might not. It just felt like that was going to blow up at some point. And I don't know if there's any way to avoid it. You know, you think about the personalities, the situation. KD obviously realizes that point. It's it's Steph Curry's team. He's always going to be considered a hired gun. And it became clear he was going to leave. And, you know, it's amazing. It didn't blow up sooner, right? It's It took, it was basically month three of the final season, but it, it could have happened earlier than that. A, a lot of those issues could have been avoided. You know, I saw Draymond say that if KD would have told them what he was going to do, then it wouldn't have been all this confusion or escalated tension. Bill, I don't know that anybody has a right to know what you're going to do. Also, you know, I don't think KD, I don't think KD knew what he was going to do. I think he just he, wanted to keep his options open. Yeah, well, I definitely think he knew what he was going to do after that incident. For sure. Yeah, agreed. Um, but, you know, I don't, I don't think he has a right. He's a free agent. You know, and you, you sign those deals to give yourself flexibility, to, to give yourself, buy yourself more time um, to make those decisions. And uh, so I, I thought that part was unfair. But even with Draymond, you know, Draymond's a player that, He'll show you up and you take it. And then that's look, that's viewed upon as Draymond's just a fierce leader, fierce competitor. Right. Draymond's not used to somebody doing that because KD was clapping at him after he didn't give him the ball. Draymond's yeah. not used to somebody showing like Steph is not going to do that. Clay is not going to do that. You know, so that was just that I think it was just escalated tension and Dre's not used to that. And he just Well, he I think he was oh. also embarrassed because he made a bad play. He should have passed it. It wasn't. So yeah, I think he was mad incident. at himself he too. Have. And then he's got KD doing this at him and he's like, ah, yeah. and he just kind of loses that. it. No, no doubt. Yeah, it's too bad. I, you think like the Heat, those four years of the Heat, the three years of that Warriors team and 2000 to 2004, Shaq, Kobe, those are probably the three most memorable runs that a team had. And San Antonio was the most successful team of all those teams, but it's a little more, you don't really know like what, all right, could we say the 2003 to 2007 Spurs, but there's not kind of, yeah, I don't know the mystique about them. There's not the, there's, there's nobody's having conversations about those teams. And ironically, those teams are really good, you know, but for they, whatever they reason, they didn't resonate the same way. Um, I don't know. I, I, I'm bummed out because I really liked watching them. I, I thought it was one of the three best teams I've ever seen. And, no, uh, you're right. You're right, Bill. And, and to the Spurs, maybe it has something to do with, I don't think they ever won back-to-back titles. They were, they were always kind of scattered through, which doesn't take, which doesn't take, um, it shouldn't take anything away from their greatness, but well, the 07 team was the best version of it. And they, they just drew the yeah. short straw in the finals because they played this yeah. pretty that. terrible Cleveland team where it was just like yeah. LeBron and a, and a bunch of role players. And they killed them. And that, you know, if they had gone against even the 08 Celtics, if you just take the 08 Celtics, you move them forward 12 months mm -hmm. and they have a slugfest with them and they win, I think that team's remembered completely differently. No, you're right there. But that 017 you mentioned, they, they, they were they were great. But that Spurs team, what year was that when they beat the Heat? It was um Oh, the 14. Oh, that team was excellent. Yeah. The 14 Woo! team. I'm Bill, I've never seen ball movement like that, man. Yeah. They were moving that ball around Patty Mills, sinking threes, man. That was beautiful 
basketball to watch. The Heat had no answer for that. I, I, I think that team, that team right there was one of the best first teams I've seen. That was the team that figured out where basketball was going when you look back at it. Because they've obviously watched a ton of old basketball games over the last four months. Yeah. The way that team played, they didn't shoot as many threes as are happening now, but basically the style and the slash and kick and all these, they, they just kind of knew who they were. I remember going on TV after game four and being like, this series is over. And people are like, oh, fuck you. Yeah. You're, you're a heat hater. I'm like, yeah. they they just won game three and game four by 20 points apiece. Like they, yeah. they don't have an answer for this. This ain't happening. Uh, do you feel like with LeBron heading into this playoffs, is there a little bit of a last stand aspect to him here? Or do you think he plays at this level for, like, is it ridiculous to count out LeBron ever leaving his prime at this point? Does this just keep going until he's 39 years old? Man, Bill, I don't know, Bill. I, I thought I thought he was breaking down when I was covering him in Cleveland when he had, the, um, he had a back injury. And he sat out for like two weeks. And that was the most time he's ever set out at yeah. that point. And that was, you know, that's pretty, that's pretty impressive. And right. so, I mean, father time has got to come at some point, Bill. But You think? You know, I've seen him practice a few, you know, practice out here, man. He, I know it's practice, but damn, brother look good, man. I mean, I don't, I don't think we're going to see any rust during this, um, during this restart. But it has to come. It has to come. But he he keeps himself in shape like nobody else I've seen. You know, maybe Jordan. They said that about Jordan and Kobe. But I think he's I probably think I, number one on the list. I, I remember talking to Maverick about this in 2016. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what, what's the one thing people don't understand about LeBron? And he was like, how much time and money he spends on his body. People have no idea what yeah. he does day after day after day after day religiously and all the thought, money, energy, training, all that stuff. That's why he's going to be great for way longer than people realize. Like he really, he, and he was saying this in 16, he was like, this isn't going to end. Now, yeah. how it ends is how it ends with Kobe in 2012, where you have a bad injury mm-hmm. and then you can't put the time in on your body like that. And you lose the eight months and I think that's how we've seen with older athletes who are great that injuries when when they can't do that day after day after day after day that's when it falls apart. But he doesn't get hurt, so you know and that's what and that's what and Bill, that's where maintenance comes into uh, today. And I know a lot of people don't like this maintenance era, or load management era, but that's where that comes into play. To kind of like we know the inevitable is going to come, but yeah, they, they hope with proper maintenance that they can prolong it. And for somebody like LeBron who takes care of his body, maybe you can squeeze another year, year and a half, uh, off of you know, off this, you know, get into his tenure at a maximum level. And so, you know, he if anybody can do it, it's gonna be him that can play at a high level up to 40. Before we go, I gotta ask you about uh media basketball. Um, okay. You missed my you weren't you weren't in my uh, my media jam last I'm year, right. I don't know if you knew this, but I'm retired. I've been retired since 2014. Okay, well, I don't know if you knew this, but most people that played were retired. No, like I'm retired. I don't I I left too good of a legacy to go back and taint it the way I did. That last the, the last I had one great comeback and then 2013-14 everything basically knees down went and yeah, I I, I just 
I just couldn't move the same way anymore. And I was basically like, I'm a stretch four who, who just can't move. <laughs> and I was like, this isn't fun. I'm going up for a rebound. I see the rebound. I'm looking at the rebound and then somebody yeah. jumps over and gets the rebound. I'm like, I got to get out. What am I doing? Got, but I made it to 44. You got to box them out. That's when I made you got to start using the fundamentals. You got to box them out. Well, how old are you now? I'm 38 now. Yeah, you eight. When you hit 40, <laughs> you hit 40, every year one thing goes. It's like, yeah. oh, I can't triple with my left hand anymore. Yeah. Oh, I can't. I can't rebound like I used to. Oh, it really hurts to box out. <laughs> you just start losing things at 40. But um, who's, so who, give me the, uh, give me the first team all NBA for media basketball players right now. Me? Um, strong, strong start anointing yourself. I, I have to, you know, yeah, I have to. I get it. Uh, me? Golly, that's, a, who else was out there? Damn, people will get mad. You know, I'm gonna put Dave McMenamin as my shooting guard. He oh, interesting. He has stroke. I play with I play with him a lot. He has a stroke. Um, you know who's really good? I don't know if he's still playing because he might be older now. But John Schumann at at, uh, M- at the NBA.com was it, really John. good. Yeah, he had like kind right? of a he kind of had a Darren Williams type game, like Is physical right? physical point guard. Yeah. Yeah, I enjoyed contact. his game. Yeah, he really knew he knew what to do. I thought he was good. Have you seen Chris Boussard play? No. Okay, I heard he used to be able to play. So, but he's that, yeah, bad. he's almost my age now. Buker was apparently really good way back when. Is that right? Yeah, he was. He was uh, like a scoring forward. You know who yeah. was apparently great was Dan Patrick. Who's now right? like yeah in his sixty? Yeah, apparently in the ESPN games he was, he was uh, really 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 good for a while. Well, DP, we're talking, he's like six four six five. How tall is he? Oh DP? yeah, he he's like le- he was legit good. Rosillo's good too. I think Rosillo's early forties now, so I don't think I don't know if he plays as much, but he was another one. He was like a banger. Um, Rosillo big yeah, offensive game. Yeah, he was. Yeah, I could tell. I'll pull the else. shit out of Rosillo. I never, I mean, Mark Spears is older now, but I'm sure Mark, you know, he had, he's like 6'5". I'm sure he had a run at some point. Yeah, he had 6'5", 6'6". Spears don't want now. It, it, it's <laughs> tough, man. It's tough to pick up. It's tough to pick five, but ain't nobody messing with me, man. I, well, you televised one of those games, right? It was, it was, it was live stream. Yeah. It was live stream. We had, we had play by play. You know, we, we had, we had the whole works, man. We had. Different camera angles. We had one of those cameras that moved across the court. Man, we, we did it real, legit. We would have did it this year, obviously, but you know the pandemic. So we'll, did you we'll think about? Did you think about having a media big three team? A media big three. That would have been fun. I, I have not, Bill. I haven't. I, yeah, I think haven't. about that. Think about that when the pandemic ends seven years from now, when when we finally have a vaccine. That would it, it would definitely be. Uh, I think media member would definitely appreciate that more, not having to run full court. That might work. True. True. That's another <laughs> that sign work. that you've turned early 40s. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. When, ha- when half court becomes a lot more appetizing. <laughs> oh, no uh, doubt, man. We uh, give, a, give me your pick for the 2020 Bizarre Playoffs. Dang. I can't see how, I can't see how Milwaukee gets bounced. Obviously, with these conditions and everybody, um, you know, being on this long hiatus, anything can anything can happen. I can't see Milwaukee getting bounced out in the East. In the West, I will say this, Bill. 
If Portland gets the play-in game, I think they win it. And if Portland is in this thing, Bill, to me, they're the most dangerous team in this league. I think if they get in, even if it's the Lakers at the number one seed, Portland has the potential to take the Lakers to the distance. And if they they happen to get by the Lakers, you can see them in the finals, man. They're healthy. Nurkic is back. Zach Collins is back. Dame and CJ, they are, man, ultra-motivated. I'm being dead serious. They're ultra-motivated. That's the scariest team out there for me. I'm picking Lakers-Celtics. Of course you are. Of course you are, Bill. I like where the Celtics are are at. There's only only thing Uh, that worries me is Kemba Walker had four months off and his knee still doesn't feel great. Yeah. I like the Celtics, too. I like the Celtics, too. Go ahead. Because I like the... Here's my theory. Young young legs. Mm-hmm. People were basically going to be playing every other day. Um, it's going to be a grind. And I I am I know other people have had this theory. I am a subscriber of the younger teams. It's an advantage. And we saw you saw it in 1999, um, with a team like uh, the Spurs who had Robinson when he still was throwing his fastball, but then you put young Duncan in there and that dude mm-hmm. could go all day. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I think the young, the young legs help. You saw it in 2012 too. With, that was the year OKC made it right. And that was 66 yeah. game season yeah. packed playoffs. And all of a sudden OKC is like, all right, we'll make the finals. We'll go. And it was young yeah. legs. So I, I think from that standpoint, the Celtics are in good shape, but the Kemba thing, you know, there's always been rumors that that's why Charlotte basically wasn't ready to commit to him big time because they knew like his knees weren't great. And the mm-hmm. fact that it was only four months here and it's not like he has like a sprained MCL or something like that. This seems like it's yeah. arthritis, which makes yeah. me nervous. You keep going. But no, to your point, Bill, about the young legs, you're dead on. And you have to remember under these conditions where everybody is just being brought back like all of a sudden, you know, like the first probably all eight games is really like a training camp period. You know yep. what I mean? So who's going to recover the quickest? It's going to be those young legs. It's going to be those guys. So you, they definitely have an edge there. But I just think Milwaukee has so much to lose if they don't get this. Man, I I, I think they feel the pressure. I, I think they I think they make some finals. Okay, Chris Haynes, congrats on everything. Enjoy the bubble. Um, Look forward you look forward to seeing you on TV. Sideline reporter, like you have a mask on when you do that. Like, how does that work? <laughs> uh, no, I won't have a mask on from my, my knowledge, but I think I'm still doing the um, the interviews. But there'll be. Have you seen the uh, what's the league? What's that basketball league that's going on right now? Uh, oh, the TBL. The yeah, yeah, the tournament. That. Yeah. So I think they're doing interviews where somebody holding this long stick mic and they kind of transfer it back and forth. You have an eight foot mic. Yeah, I think it'd be something like that. So those are those are the walk offs right there. All right, cool. All right, stay safe. Thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. All right, take care, Bill. All right, we're bringing in Alex Winter in one second. First, Tiger is back. Tiger is back. That means we're in for an epic weekend of golf. And if you're excited as I am about his return, you want to celebrate with me on FanDuel Sportsbook. It's America's number one sports betting site for a reason. It's easy to use. They've got a simple, intuitive app that makes it easy to find the bet you're looking for. Lock it in. Unlike other sportsbooks, once you win, FanDuel gets you your cash in as little as 24 hours. Why? It's the right thing to do. 
If you can dream, if you can probably bet through FanDuel Sportsbook, they offer spreads, parlays, money lines, over-under props, in-game bets, all in one easy-to-use app. Right now, the right thing for you to do is download, download FanDuel Sportsbook and check out their fantastic app for yourself. Be sure to sign up using my promo code BS to claim your exclusive $500 risk-free bet. I haven't decided who I'm betting on this week. I'm waiting for the new episode of Fairway Rolling with Joe House and Nathan Hubbard where they're going to, um, they, that podcast has been awesome, by the way. But uh, they've been kind of on fire with predicting what's going to happen. So I'm going to listen to Fairway Rolling. I'm going to also join their little FanDuel league that they have. Um, and I am going to decide who to bet on. If you want to bet, you could do it in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Indiana, or Colorado on FanDuel. You have to be 21 plus. You have to live in one of those states. First online real money wager only. Refund issued as non-withdrawable site credit that expires in 14 days. Restrictions apply. See full terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In West Virginia, visit 1800gambler.net. In Indiana, call 800-9-WITH-IT. Or in Colorado, call 800-522-4700. All right, bringing in Alex Winter right now. He's somebody I've gotten over the last two years. I think he's really talented. And uh, and it was an absolute delight to work with him. And he did a great job in this uh, documentary, Showbiz Kids, which you can find tonight on HBO 9 p.m. Here he is. All right, my friend Alex Winter is here. He's in the middle of a whirlwind press tour. I'm, he's almost like a press tour carcass at this point. But I, I think <laughs> I'm going to be the man. caffeine bolt he, he needs. <laughs> I got plenty of caffeine. I'm ready for you. Two years ago, you had an idea. We talked we we talked about a bunch of ideas you had. And then you had this one. Yeah. And it was the the whole process of this has been so enjoyable where it was just like, that's a great idea. Let's make it. And then we pitched at HBO and HBO was like, great idea, go make it. And then yeah. you made exactly the film you pitched, which is pretty much the only time in my career that's ever happened that easily. <laughs> it's not always this easy, right? Right. Yeah, I know. And then I was like, wow, I'm using all this Tweety music as like, as like temp. I wonder if Tweety would score it. Oh, he will. Great. <laughs> Unbelievable. And we're finally here. The, I, you know, obviously there's bigger concerns in life with the pandemic, but it yeah. sucks that we didn't get like, you know, the big premiere and, and all that stuff. But I still think it's really cool that it's coming at a time when people want content, any content. And this is a really good documentary. Yeah. I mean, honestly, it's the only project I've got that hasn't been completely sideblinded by the pandemic. So I'm really grateful. You know, you've been great. Ringer was great. HBO have been great partners. And they were like, let's bring it up in the schedule. You know, we're all stuck at home and it's all been super smooth. So it's, uh, yeah, it's been a really good experience. I'm really, I'm really grateful that we're putting it out in July. And I just think that, you know, it's, it's people are stuck at home and it gives them something to watch amongst all the other stuff. So I'm happy about that. Well, let's go backwards just for some of the people that don't know who you are, because you've, yeah. you've done a whole bunch of things over the course of your career. And one of the few people that have gone from acting to just making documentaries mostly. And, you know, some people have tried that, but not a lot of people have done it successfully. But going backwards, you were a child actor, which is what made you interested in this whole thing. You were a child actor in the 80s. You intersected with a bunch of people that I grew up watching. Yeah. Uh, you worked with some of those people. Um, you're kind of more all over the place 
in that decade than I think people realize. Your IMDb is action packed. Um, <laughs> at what point in your life did you realize I really want to travel backwards and talk about what it's like to be a child actor, not just a oh my god, there are all these dangers and you might get hooked on drugs and like. Yeah, there's so many more pieces to it, which was the compelling thing to me. When did you realize you wanted to tell that story? I think when I became a dad and I had kids and I looked at their childhoods, which were not in the entertainment. I mean, I started professionally at nine years old and I actually cleaned through to 26. And I look at my kids when my, I got a 22 year old now, when he was nine, when I got a 10 year old now, I look at them and I'm like, there's no way. Like, <laughs> like, right. like there's, they would be like, they would be like cannon fodder, you know? Um, and so I, then I started to think like, wow, how did I actually manage that? And it wasn't like all, like you said, it wasn't all negative. It was just full on, you know, at 12 years old, I was, I was co-starring in a Broadway show, a giant show with like a lot of responsibility. And, you know, my kids at 12 and 13 were, you know, drooling in the backyard and still eating dirt. And, uh, and they're great kids and they're really smart. It was just so unlike my childhood, I began to think, well, there's a lot of things about my childhood that were very similar to my kids because I was just a kid. And there are a lot of things that are like literally like an alien from another planet. And I never felt like I'd ever seen that conveyed in a film. Like I never felt mm. that had anyone had ever showed me anything remotely like what my experience was. It was like, as soon as you started talking about being a child, it was like, okay, we're going to just talk about sexual abuse. We're going to just talk about how crappy your transition into regular life was. We're going to just Or drugs. Or drugs. Or your, your terrible stage mother. Or like all of these sort of cliches, which still abound and still grab eyeballs. And these things do happen, but it's so, it was such a fragment of my experience and not the whole experience. And I was even someone who had like extreme trauma. Like I couldn't even say, you know, I have friends like, you know, I guess I'm throwing them under the bus. I have friends like Elijah Wood who literally have no problems, right? Yeah. <laughs> and no neuroses. And he's just a perfect human being. And, you know, and I love him dearly. And he just sailed clean through. Um, I didn't sail clean through, but I had a great time. And I don't regret it. Um, and I'd never seen that expressed. I'd never seen the real full spectrum of that experience expressed. And that's what I really wanted to do. Well, I remember the first time we talked about it, seriously. And having lived in LA and my kids have grown up here, and especially my son, who's a really charismatic kid who in the wrong hands, I think somebody would be like, oh, we should start auditioning you around and things like that. And my attitude, and when I would talk to other parents about it, I was like, why would we do that to him? Right. Why would we want him to have that life? And so I was always looking at it in the prism of, is it worth it? Even for like the people who succeeded, mm -hmm. was it worth it? to go through all that. And then the more we talked about it and you talked about the film you wanted to make, I think the piece that I never had really considered before that I was so fascinated by was the concept of failing when you're like 12, when you're right. like, you've spent a year making this movie, you're 12, you don't know any better. You think it's going to be this massive success and then it bombs and you feel like the biggest loser in the world. Yeah. Yeah, and you don't have the the psychological capacity to deal with that kind of rejection, that kind of disappointment. Your expectations are all over the place. It is a very, uh, it is a world where your fantasies do come true in a way. So your nightmares can come true too. Like I talk about this, but I remember the first time I stepped on a Broadway stage at 12, 13 years old. It was a giant theater. It was in a huge hit show. I was carrying the show with a duet. It was like paradise. You know, I was a kid who'd grown up loving 
movies and theater. And there I was opening a big Broadway show at, at a really young age. And it really was great and a joyful experience. And yet there was a lot almost immediately that was not great. So it was a, a very complicated ball of wax from the very beginning. Yeah, I remember really the last couple of years, sometimes when I have actors or actresses on the podcast and they had a child actor background, now I'm, I'm always so fascinated in that part. I remember Ethan Hawke was on talking about how he got Explorers and Explorers was supposed to be this massive movie and it wasn't. And then he went back to school and people were making fun of him because, you know, yeah. Oh yeah, explorers that sucked, and he was just like completely devastated. Yeah, and that's that's the piece of the the child acting, child singer, whatever, where the whole failure component, which you really dive into in your film, that I thought that resonated with me the most. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, that's why I opened the film that way with Diana Sarah Carey, you know, who had this, who had the biggest career you could have at a time when no one, she was literally the only like the only child star in the, on the planet. And, yeah. you know, so that's literally being the one, right? She's Neo, basically. <laughs> yeah, and then by seven years old, her career is over, like flat out over. And she's like doing extra work by 12. Like when my career was just starting, hers was already done. And she was out the, the industry by 17 completely. So, I mean, that's an insane trajectory when you think about the age that she was having to try to process all that. And she spent a good deal of a, a good chunk of her adulthood just trying to make sense of what the hell had happened between zero and seven. And then, you know, we were thinking about the seventies, the eighties, the nineties, two thousands, each decade. There's different kind of third rail things you have to worry about. Right. right. In the seventies, it's just, it's a fucking free for all. Brick Shields is making pretty baby. She's 13 playing a hooker. Like that would never happen now. Yeah. The eighties cocaine has become a real thing. Yes. That's when predators start going into the business in a real way. And that's eighties through the nineties. But then now you move into this century. Some of those things we've learned how to lit litigate them. We've learned how to, you know, <laughs> really worry about who's on a set, things like that. But now social media has become the most dangerous thing. And that was a tough one for us to figure out. Like, how much do we do with social media? How tough is that for a child actor where you get an instant feedback? You could get just crushed on Instagram and your mentions. Like, how do you handle that? So what, what was your mindset of how to include that versus the old stuff? Well, I wanted to find a kid that had gone through the kind of Disney machine um, at the time the internet was really taking off and and... Uh, that was a very short list of people that I knew would be good on camera and, and uh, compelling. And uh, that's why I went after Cameron Boyce. And, and he was the person that I really wanted the most out of all of the kids that I had on that list. And I mean, I have to sort of not bury the lead and talk about the fact that he died of an epileptic seizure a year ago. Um, and it was absolutely devastating. Um, beyond, he was just the greatest, greatest kid. And he was only 20 years old when he passed. But from five to 20, he was on fire. And the thing I loved about Cameron was like, I knew I wanted to show, uh, I mean, there's so much of a stereotype in this industry. Like it's, oh, what kid would want to perform? I mean, there are a lot of kids who don't want to perform, right? But there are kids who really do want to perform, like who are going to their mom and dad who aren't even in the industry and saying, no, you don't get it. I want to be on stage. I, I was that kid, right? Yeah. Cam Cameron was that kid. Mara Wilson was that kid. 
uh, I mean, my parents were kind of aghast, right? <laughs> and they were very effete kind of college professor snobby people. And they were like, you want to do what now? You know? Um, and so it was, I wanted to show the, the passion that sometimes does come from someone that young who's really born to be on stage. But then if you're doing that in the, in the modern era, then every single mistake you make, every pimple, every screw up online, every girlfriend that dumps you, like even your very first kiss, whatever, it's all documented on social media forever. It's, it doesn't go away. It's, it's baked into the chronicle of, of, you know, of uh, our times. So Cameron was a really good way into that because he obviously had navigate, navigated it successfully, uh, but he was not like, no one is that thick skinned. He's a human being and he was sensitive. And I really wanted the perspective of someone who would be honest about what that was like but who hadn't been so crushed by it that it, you know, it was, they couldn't even communicate the experience. Well, now you're seeing the cycle of fame for young people is now condensed and you're seeing it. I watch it with my kids, like these TikTok stars and YouTube stars that they, you know, become enchanted by. And those people are, are done in six months or nine months, 11 months. They were riding high. They're huge. And then they're just gone. They're discarded for the next one. So I can't even imagine what it's like in that universe. At least when you're an actor in the 80s, 90s, you could move on to the next role, the next thing. In this, you almost only have one chance. It's true. And even when you're performing, even if you get rejection, um, unless you really just don't want to do it and not put it, because you know this, it's the same in sports. It, you may not, be, have, may not have been born with like God-given superstar talent, but if you really want something and you're willing to work really hard at it, you will get somewhere, right? And it's the same in the entertainment industry. And so for the kids that really want it and work really hard, they do get somewhere. And that positive reinforcement, when you do get like what happened to Ethan Hawke and Explorers, he's, you know, might've crushed him for a beat, but he picked himself up. He dusted himself yeah. off. And he knew he was good underneath it because he knew he was willing to do the work and that he had passion. Henry Thomas, same thing. He was like finished ET, went through a lot of shit in his adolescence, a lot of stress in his adolescence. You know, but he knew he'd had enough positive reinforcement. He's like, you know what? I know I'm good. Like, I know I'm good. And he picked, he dusted himself off and has done great work as an adult. So I think that that's the thing about, and you and I talked about this when we first started talking about conceiving the movie, you know, about why we didn't want to just include YouTube kids, you know, why it wasn't going to just be so broad that we were going to include, you know, show, uh, social media stars because it's a very different phenomenon and what they're known for and what their skill sets are are so different that you're right. If you're famous for basically hanging out in your living room and like, you know, looking at unboxing things, then what really separates you from the next person that people want to watch who unboxes things in their living room? Like you don't, how do you develop any sense of worth around that? That's going to carry you through to, to rebuilding yourself. Well, our joke was always like, that would be the sequel after this one did well. Right. Where yeah. you just, that's, we just move into that generation with the next one. Yeah. I think one thing that was fascinating and unlike any other documentary that I've been involved with was the guest list of people we were interviewing was so important Yeah. Um, to have a good mix of people, a mix of different voices and experiences. And then there's this whole other subplot of, you knew all these people and there were some other people who seemed to be interested and half the time it was, I can't do it, but that sounds like an awesome documentary. I wish I could. And that was the message over and over again. And I really wonder 
after this comes out, who you're going to hear from, like, ah, oh, shit, I should have fucking done an interview with you. God damn oh, it. I'm, I'm already hearing that. That's already happening. That started happening as soon as the trailer went out. I started getting calls from people that I knew who were like, you know, this was, and it, look, this is not something because I'm great or anything. It's just, we did it. We, we told sort of the inside story from the perspective of the people involved. The, the subjects that we got, you know, were really great and did an incredible job. Uh, and were very honest and very uh, compelling. So, you know, I got a lot of people, you know, even casting directors from, like, huge casting directors from, you know, the age of, of doing big kid stuff, who were just like, this is the story that no one's ever told. Like, if someone's right. finally telling it. And, you know, I've, I have friends who who had kids who were big stars, who were, who were parents, who were like, this was, I watched the trailer and it was literally my life. Like, I just got that from the trailer. Um, so it, it's just something that no one, you know, a group of us had never, us meaning a bunch of child actors, had never gotten together and told our stories before. And, and uh, it is weird. I mean, I remember when I first sat down with you to talk about it, we both kind of looked at each other like, why has no one done this? It seems like someone should have done this at some point, right? It seems so obvious. Well, we were saying it could be like seven hours. Right, of course. It, right. it, it, it could be multiple parts. Like it, yeah. there was so much material. You had 80, 90 years of material we could have dove into, you know? Yeah, it's true. It's true. So, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful that, that we got to do it. Um, I do think it's, you know, to your point, it's the beginning of a conversation. It's not the end of one. There's a lot more to be said. You know, Mara wrote a really good book about her experiences. I will probably someday write a book about you know, some of my experiences in that space, but you know, there's, there's a satisfaction in knowing that that group of people got to tell their stories their way. And I also was very happy that we got, we got really great responses from the subjects themselves when they saw the film. And one of my favorite responses I got, I mean, Evan and I have had, you know, great interchange about, about the cathartic nature of having done it for both of us, frankly. Evan uh, Rachel Wood. For yeah, Evan Rachel listening. Wood. Yeah. yeah. And and obviously I feel so protective of the people in the film. You know, you feel like both parental and sort of fraternal with, with your subjects. Uh, but Mara Wilson said something so lovely to me the other day that, that uh, you know, she had said something in the interview. We had a lot of trust going in. My story is very well known to most of my fellows in the business. So they know what I've been through. And so there was a good level of trust there. But, you know, she'd said a couple of things that she said she didn't usually say in interviews and she'd not regretted it, but had sort of was a little concerned to how that would come off. And then she watched the doc and, and the thing that she was, which I don't even know what it was. She's never told me, but she said the anecdote that she was so concerned about was sandwiched between one actor saying the exact same thing and another actor saying the exact same thing. And it kind of neutralized her own feelings of either remorse or sensitivity around that anecdote, like around that part of her past. And right. that, that really happened to me too, making the, film like I realized that even things I'd stigmatized about myself which are kind of abstract they're not the things you would think they're, they can be subtle because so many weird things happening when you're a kid just kind of got neutralized by just hearing so many people tell the same story and and from such a heartfelt place and that was that was cathartic and I'm hoping when the film goes out into the broader public that that's kind of the the sort of net result of of the impact that it has well there was we were dealing with the stigma of what the film could be to people where they're thinking like, I know I'm listening to you. I know, I know what you're saying. I know you're saying it's not going to be like this. And then the film comes out and it's 25 minutes on how river Phoenix died and 30 minutes on child predators in the late eighties. And then my interviews mixed into that. Right. And I did feel like even though you were doing it, 
and you had a lot of the relationships, it still seemed like there were some people that we tried to get that were just like, eh, it's just not worth it. Right. It's not worth it for me to give you the time. I don't know what this is going to ultimately be. And I think they're, you know, probably going to regret it. Yeah. I think that, that to be fair, when you're dealing with, with your childhood and events that happened around your childhood, there's a lot of trust issues, right? Whether you're in show business or not. So if you right. feel like your trust has been betrayed you're over the course of having been a child actor, you're always going to have some kind of, some level of vigilance, right? You're always going to have some level of, uh, this may be cool, but it's just like you said, it's not worth the risk. It's not worth me putting the wall down just to get betrayed again 30 years later. Well, um, this is why you were the only person who could have done this. I feel like it had to be somebody who was a child actor yeah. who made this. Otherwise, it's like you're not even getting the people you got. Yeah, yeah. And they're certainly not going to be willing to say anything to me of any value. And, you know, some of them I'd known a long time, even though I, I wouldn't say any of them, even the ones I know well, I knew their story. Like, uh, I didn't know. I know Henry very well. I didn't know Henry's full story or Mila's, who I've known since she was quite young. Um so there was a level of trust because they knew I'd been there, but there was also, they came to the table uh, prepared to be honest. And that was just super, you know, that was super lucky. I was really grateful for that. Um, but I also was very understanding of the people who didn't want to talk. You yeah. know, I, I would talk to people, they'd be like, I can't do this. There's no, I mean, I would love to do it, um, but I just can't. I can't uh, tell these stories. I can't revisit that period. And it isn't all pain. It's just a lot of times it's, you know, they feel it might be damaging for their career. You know, they feel like there's things they haven't told their own family, whatever. Um, or they feel like they already talked about it and they're good. They're, well, they're already too. on the record. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, there was plenty of that. I mean, and, and frankly, we, we often didn't go after those people because like there's certain child actors whose stories we know and we know and we know, <laughs> like we really need to hear them talk more about something that we already know intimately. Um, and then there are people whose stories aren't particularly interesting, right? Who yeah. had like, you know, there are people who I have huge respect for who have been really successful, but their lives are pretty uneventful and they, you know, they don't have that much to offer as far as their perspective on it. And then another decision we had to figure out is how involved are, are you and your story in this whole thing? Do, you know, to mix results over the years with documentaries, we've seen people throw themselves in. Yeah. And they've either done it as a subject or they've done it just because they're like, oh, it'll be cool if you hear my voice as I'm interviewing somebody. And it's like, I I always operate from the standpoint of, I don't want to hear from you unless there's an awesome reason and it makes it better. Otherwise, right. let's not hear from you. But yeah. I, I thought we handled it right, but it was a really interesting thing to bat around and figure out what the right idea was. Yeah, I think it was important to examine the possibility of it or it would have been you know, irresponsible creatively uh, from my end. And I did go so far as to assemble all my media. Like I went back and got all my child photos, all videos from my shows, bunch of stuff so that uh, Wes, Wes Cadwell, who cut the film, he and I could have easily sort of slipped me into the ensemble. We did, um, I'm not even sure I ever sent this to you. We did actually do a pass where we tried that, where I just did it as VO, like as if I was an interview. It, yeah. re it really did not work. It was exactly what we suspected it was. The whole, it was like a record scratch, right? The whole yeah. movie just stops. And you just go, oh, the director's here now. Um, and he's going to tell his story. And, I, you know, I'm with you creatively. I very, very rarely like uh, watching the filmmaker inserting them. It's a very 
kind of trendy thing to do right now, um, just because we live in a world where, you know, we're playing a lot with the conventions of narrative and what even is a documentary and what is the line between a documentary and a narrative and, you know, where's the truth and where's the lie and all of that. And I get it. Some of those films are interesting, um, but it's very, very distracting. And it's very, it calls a lot of attention to itself. And the whole theme of the movie I was, that I wanted to make was that these stories are universal, um, that this is one conversation across time. And that doesn't work if I'm in it. It's just automatically not one conversation. It's my conversation. Like the only film I can think of recently that worked uh, with, the, with the director in it uh, was Minding the Gap. Because he's such a yeah. fundamental part of the narrative. Like it's, it's literally a coming of age. It's like Stand By Me and he's one of the kids. He like, had to be in that. He had yeah, to I agree. Be in that. Yeah. But I almost, otherwise, I almost never like it. I always feel like, oh God, I always feel like it's an executive somewhere told the director, you got to be in this. Find a way to put yourself in. And, and the director kind of begrudgingly starts filming himself. Um, I yeah. really didn't want to do that. Yeah. One gimmick, my friend Jason Hare, who I did uh, Andre with, Andre the Giant, but he just did the Michael Jordan thing. And he had this gimmick in there when he would give Michael Jordan his iPad to look at some little snippet of an interview he had already done with somebody else. And then he would capture Jordan's reaction to the interview and the camera. And it was really effective and really smart. Most of the time, those ideas make the thing worse when it's like, yeah. hey, I'm coming in. And it's yeah. like, no, 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 stay over there. What are you doing? Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, let's talk about you in the 80s because you're in a whole bunch of stuff, but then you become the guy from Bill and Ted, which is another one of the themes we explore in this movie when you get pigeonholed by one role and people just see you and you're like, oh, you're just this person in this one thing I saw. I can't accept you as anything else. Did you, how, how strongly did you feel like that happened to you? Um, it did from the standpoint that I was suddenly... I was, it was a phenomenon worldwide. So anywhere I went, I was recognized as Bill. I'd been recognized from Lost Boys. I've been recognized from, from other stuff. And I came up on Broadway. And so I had the experience of like coming out of a stage door and signing autographs at 13, 14, whatever, um, doing interviews. You know, I'd had a, uh, an, an experience with, with having some sense of notoriety. Primarily, the way it impacted my life was the recognition, was, was that... I, like Henry talks about in the film, I could not go anywhere on the planet without people freaking out because Bill was there. <laughs> and you know, right. I, would, I would have people slide all the way across the floor, bars on their knees doing air guitar up to my bar stool. And um, I mean, it was, it was impossible. And God forbid, because Keanu and I have always been very close. God forbid the two of us were together anywhere. Forget it. I mean, it's still, oh like, my God. It's still like that. But, but, um, but back then it was just, it was literally like a whole other thing. It didn't really impact me in terms of pigeonholing me because I stopped acting at that time. So yeah. it, it coincided, like, I, you know, I, I did all this acting from age 10, uh, and I was on Broadway all the way from 12 until 17, every day, eight shows a week, two long-running shows back-to-back, -back, all of high school, all of middle school, all on Broadway. Um, so by the time... I got to college and I, you know, unlike Cameron Boyce, I, I wanted to stop acting and go to college. I wanted to go to film school and I went to NYU and I came out and I was directing and I had an agent manager and I booked Bill and Ted and Lost Boys and all that while I was already directing. I was at Propaganda and making music videos and commercials and I had a whole directing and writing career that was getting started. 
And my intention at that time was to phase out the acting and just focused on the directing. And it wasn't, it wasn't just a career move. I was, I was baked, you know, like I was right. very much like Evan and Will and Mara talk about in the movie. I'd just been, I'd been at it so long since I was so young. Um, and I love to act, you know, and I love being in the Bill and Ted movies and everything, but I was pretty fried and I'd just been under the public eye a little too long and I needed a break. Like I needed to just not have an acting agent and not be in Hollywood and not have that spotlight on me and just do my work quietly and kind of do my thing. Um, and I wasn't really ready to come back until we did this last Bill and Ted movie. It took, took me 25 years. So, you know, it's uh, it's an interesting phenomenon. I hadn't thought about that much, honestly, Bill, until I made the doc and I just heard the same story over and over again from my subjects. I was like, yeah, that's really what I did. Like that's, I hadn't, given it a ton of thought because I was like, I always wanted to direct. I'm just going to, I was like, no, I, I didn't want to just direct. I really wanted out, you know? Well, that was the part that you're kind of hoping comes across when we're throwing around ideas for something versus when you're actually, you're putting all the interviews together and you realize it's undeniable. You could take somebody's story from 2018 and somebody's story from 1976. And it's basically the same story. Yeah. And all of these things have changed, but not really. Yeah. And I think that was the most shocking thing is like you literally could have had one person from every decade starting in 1940 and made this film. Yeah. Yeah. And they're finishing like Cameron Boyce is finishing Diana, you know, a hundred year old woman's sentences with the exact same sentence. So, you know, that was really, really interesting. So yeah, for me, I didn't, I didn't really get billed so much. Um, for that reason was like, it was around the time I made freaked. And then I was like, I'm, I'm out of here. So can, can I ask you a Keanu question? Yeah, sure. It's a question I've already asked you, but I'm just going to do it for the podcast. <laughs> Did you expect what happened to him over the last 30 years to happen? What in terms of his career? Yeah. In terms of like speed, the matrix, John wick, like, like he's basically, became, I think, one of the most bankable A-list actors of the last 30 years. Did, were there signs of that when you were working with him? Or do you, like, yes. what, how would you explain it? No, I, I, it's, not, it's not mystical to me because he's honestly one of my very best friends and we have like grown up together. Um, and I see a lot of him and I have all the way along the, the path of his career. I've, I've, we've been very close. Um, and the thing... Again, you know, you deal with you deal with a lot of actors, so you get it. But you deal with a lot of athletes too. Keanu started as an athlete. You know, he was almost pro hockey. Yeah, and I haven't met anyone. I mean, literally anyone at the top of their game in our field who doesn't work harder than anyone else, like markedly harder than anyone else, and not neurotically and not workaholically. But, but in terms of focus and drive, like you don't have that career if you don't want it. You may even think you want it and not really somewhere in your heart want it. You won't have it, right? You have to, you have to want it and you have to be willing to work 10 times harder than the other guy to have it. He's, he has, you know, Reeves has this, has a lot, a, a, a combination of, of intellect uh, and drive. And frankly, a lot of really high functioning people that I know in my business and in Silicon Valley, because I've done a lot of stuff in technology, 
have that. Like they're, they're very, very smart, but it isn't just talent and it isn't just intelligence. They will work markedly harder than the next person. And, you know, they taught, you talk about rejection, you talk about the things that can punt people out of the business. I, d- I don't know anyone, him included, but not to, you know, not to psychoanalyze Reeves, because I feel this way about it. all those people sort of working at that level. They're all human beings. They all feel the sting of rejection and, you know, life can be difficult and you have shitty years or whatever, but they pick themselves up and they keep moving and they, and they, you know, they have that kind of resilience of like, I'm just going to go at it. And Reeves has always felt very much like kind of a, kind of a poet athlete to me. I know that sounds a little airy fairy, but like, you know, he is an actor's actor. He's not a, a hockey player. Um, and he's very studied in his craft and everything, but he's like a, a pro athlete. He's like, okay, I had a crappy year. I'm going to keep training. I'm going to keep being my best. And there's a very good chance I'll come out on the ice next year and not have a crappy year. And lo and behold, he didn't. Right. Well, we did the rewatchables uh, on standby me. It kind of an honor of your documentary coming out this week. It was, ba- it was, Either Stand By Me or E.T. We picked Stand By Me. <laughs> cool. Mainly because we want to have the River Phoenix conversation at the top. And that was the guy from, you know, your generation. Um, although you're older than him a little bit. But, a little bit. Or you're not older, really. Not, not that much older. Yeah, pretty similar. Yeah, I certainly knew him. So. But he's kind of the, like, he easily could have been in this doc. We easily could have had a river part. Um, and there hasn't been a River Phoenix doc and everybody from that generation, I think, simultaneously revered him and is super protective of his legacy. Why is that? You know, he was a very, very lovely person from the, the few interactions that I had with him. Um, he was incredibly talented. Uh, he had a kind of a, uh, he had a very clear artistic sensibility. But there's a protectiveness that we kind of all had coming up and uh, a sort of, it was like a, a, you know, your brother, your brothers and sisters, you see each other at auditions, you hear about people going through hard times. Uh, His death, uh, I remember vividly, and, you know, this was my whole social group uh, at that time, um, including my friends who ran the Viper Room. And uh, you know, his death was like a, was a, was a, a blindside because, you know, it wasn't someone who was sort of out outwardly kind of Joe crazy party guy. Um, even though, you know, there was drugs around all of us at that time. Uh, and I just think that it was such a, 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 an intense shock to this kind of system of the community. Um, there was a feeling of, of loss with him specifically but there was also this feeling like it could have been you. Yeah. Um, there was a real relatability to river and, you know, we all kind of checked ourselves when that happened and we were all like off the rails on some level or another, all of us, myself included. And we all just kind of stopped and we're like, Oh, this train is kind of going somewhere. Not great. Like collectively. And, uh, you know, a lot of people bailed out. Will bailed out. Downey went through what he went through. I literally quit and left LA. Um, you know, every person I know, not to get into detail, went through some stuff around that time that were from that generate, you know, that group, you know. Uh it was sort of like the the kind of lame, you know, parallel to the to the summer of love, to, you know, after Altamont, right? It was like right. it was like the 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 party of the 80s was over and everything got really dark 
for a little while in the early to mid 90s. Yeah, you think about the cocaine era and the party era, because I, I just had Rob Lowe on my podcast and we were talking about he's he's making Sin Almost Fire in 85 and they're just, they're getting it on. They're partying, they're, he's got a place in Hollywood Hills and nobody really knows that half the stuff they're doing is really that bad. I mean, they know it's not great, but they don't know it's like, hey man, you people are going to die and you're going to lose all your stuff and and he's just out and everybody's out. Everybody knows each other. And you can't, your generation's like a tight, like probably a half generation after that, but it was the same thing. You're all out. It's the late eighties. You're yeah, totally. just doing stuff unchecked. Yeah. yeah. And well, you know, I worked on Lost Boys in 86 and that was the vibe. That was the eighties on full turbo mode and it was all go. And there was a lot going on. I mean, thankfully Joel, was a really good den dad and that set was really safe um, and yeah. very comfortable and very professional. And I, I truly mean that. I got to see him not long before he died and we had a really, really sweet chat about working together. But I mean, you know, at night, like away from the shackles of production, it was insane. It was totally off the rails. And, and uh, you know, there was a price to pay for that. It just felt very strange to everyone that River was going to be the one to pay that price. And I think that was just incredibly unexpected. When was the last time you watched The Lost Boys? Um, I don't think I've watched that movie all the way through in in, in decades. Um, I think my kids have watched it, and I've like sort of waltzed into the room to see a little bit of it. And I'm always I'm always struck by how gorgeous it is. It's unbelievably well crafted that movie for what it is for like this crazy genre movie about vampires. It's kind of half a comedy now. Oh yeah, but it was then. I mean, we we knew then that it was you know look at the way he handles the you know Corey Feldman and like even us like the whole thing was so grotesquely over the top. We knew there was like Kiefer and I knew like the thing. Was I don't horrible. think I knew watching it in the in the <laughs> mid eighties. I'm like cool vampire movie, and then you you realize thirty years later like oh that sax scene is completely insane. Oh come on, how is yeah. that in a movie? Yeah, like, what, what's going on? <laughs> Close ups of the sax guy. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's such. I'm obviously I'm old and I'm in the demo, but I have such fond memories of so many of those movies because yeah. they've aged in such a fun way. We yeah. just did say almost fire and rewatchables. That movie's insane now. Yeah. And that was a, a huge hit. Yeah, I know. People are like, this is the big chill for that generation. Yeah. It's like that movie's bonkers. Yeah. It really but, is. But uh yeah. it's really funny. I that air is so distinct, the hair. Yeah. Um, yeah. all that stuff. It's really great. So what was the Doing this documentary, what was the thing you f- you figure you know everything about this story? You're the expert. What was the did you learn anything that just surprised you? There was there a revelation that you're like, holy shit, I had no idea. Um, I mean, there were many revelations. I think that the re- the main revelation is the thing we touched on earlier, and I really had no idea, which was the universality of of everyone's narrative. I mean, mm. it almost like even my crew, like Angel, my DP, we would look at each other after interview and be like. That's crazy. Like we had just come from doing one person who was, whether it was Diana at a hundred or whoever, Jada talking about come up in Baltimore and then you got Cameron and you're like, the stories are literally identical. And yeah, you know, by the time I got to Evan, Rachel Wood, you know, who I knew her story, but I didn't know the, the nuance of it. And she's talking about having that, that moment in her early twenties when she, you know, as great as her career was and as great grateful for it as she was. And as much as she wanted it, all of those things lined up. She still had that moment of pausing and going, who am I and what am I doing? That was revelatory for me, uh, both 
thematically and personally. Like thematically, I just it never had it never. I'd always wanted it to be like one conversation across time, but I'd never assumed it would literally be one conversation across time. But personally, it was really cathartic to hear all these different people tell my story. And because they were very considered people working through some of the things I'd worked through, because I've done a lot of work, some of the things I hadn't worked through that I thought I'd worked through. So Mm. it was much more cathartic for me individually than I thought it was going to be. Like I, I've done so much work on like my childhood and the stuff I went through and all of that. And I'm, I'm turning 55 in a couple of days and I've been around a while and I got kids and a good life and everything is hunky dory, but I did a lot of work. Like I rolled up my sleeves. And I was like, at a certain point I was like, something's not right. I better do some work. Right. So right. I, I figured I've done the work. I'm good. You know, it's like Will says in the movie, but I was sitting and listening to people going, wow, there's stuff about myself and my own past. And it was weird, man, because I'm about to have Bill and Ted come out and I haven't been on camera in a long time and it like it was a it was a real head trip in terms of like really being brought back to my childhood like there I am playing a character I haven't played since I was 25 making a movie about being a child actor when I left the business intentionally and went through a lot of stuff and like I'm having it was all that stuff was in my face at the same time and like and thankfully it was good it wasn't bad but I did have a moment of going, oh, I have a lot more clarity of my own path than I've ever had just making this film and hearing these people. Like, I totally see what I did now. Like, I was running. I got fried. I left. At a certain point, I came back. Like, I'd never really put the pieces together that clearly before. Well, I think it's a special movie. And like you said earlier, it's kind of amazing it never happened before. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad and, it happened. I think the actors that are in it are glad it happened. It's. You know, that that's always my dream when I'm doing any kind of documentary is always, are we doing something that I haven't seen? Yeah. And would I want to see this? And from the moment you pitched it, it was like, man, I'd want to see that. I would rather we did that than somebody else would just be jealous of it. And the experience was a pleasure. You're a really talented dude. Oh, and uh, I was just, I was just really impressed with the entire process. It shouldn't It shouldn't be as easy as it was. I'm excited to see what the reaction is to it. And who knows, maybe there will be a sequel at some point. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see what happens. There's certainly more story to tell. So. All right. Uh, and good luck with Bill and Ted. Thanks, man. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm excited to see what your kids think of that one. Yeah. Well, they love the first two. We made a Bill yeah, and no. Ted movie. So if, if you like Bill and Ted, I think you'll like it. It is. The Bill yeah. But now movie. you're, but now you're the age you are now and you're their dad who they're hanging out with every day. And then all of a sudden you're be on this 70 foot screen. Although hopefully maybe yeah. Who, who knows? Maybe we won't have movie theaters that I don't even know. Jesus. Yeah, no one does. Yeah. But I, I will be on some screen. That is true. You'll be on a screen. There'll <laughs> <laughs> be a screen somewhere. Yeah. All right. Alex, thanks for coming on. Uh, and yeah. congrats on the movie. It was, I'm honored to be involved, even in a small way. I thought it was uh, really great. Uh, it, was, it was really great that we got to do it together, man. Thank you so much. All right. All right. Before we go wanted to play a snippet from the rewatchables about stand by me. This is a conversation Chris Ryan and I had about river Phoenix. It's hard to watch this movie and not think about river Phoenix. It's not hard to think about child actors and not think about river Phoenix. He was, um, one of the greats, one of the best under 18 actors I think we've had in my lifetime. So Chris and I talked about this and, and the whole concept of, uh, lost potential and how it relates to sports and acting and some other stuff. Here's that conversation. Uh, It's a snippet from the new rewatchables about Stand By Me. 
I want to dive into River Phoenix because it's really hard to watch this movie and not get swept up in how great he is and all the potential he has. And it's really an experience you only have a couple times with actors like this where you just know they're going to be incredible. I felt this way with uh, DiCaprio in This Boy's Life. I felt this way with Natalie Portman and The Professional and Beautiful Girls where you're just like, that person is going to be a, a, a number one overall draft pick at some point in their life. And I can't wait to see this awesome career they have. The best way I can explain the River Phoenix thing to people who are younger is another analogy that might be hard for people to understand when they're younger. But to me, it's like Glenn Bias for acting. Um, where it's like, there's this Len Bias scenario where nothing bad happens to him and he basically becomes as good as Charles Barkley or Carl Malone on the Celtics with Larry Bird and Kevin McHale. He becomes the forward version of Michael Jordan. He ushers in this whole new era of basically power plus ballet for an NBA forward. And he's just such, he's like probably one of the first NBA badasses that we have. And he has this whole career and we just think of him so fondly. And in one minute it was gone. And I feel the same way with River Phoenix. The guy died when he was 23. And when you watch this movie, I think the potential of him and what he could have become, it almost overpowers the movie. And I, and I mean it in a good way. It's his movie. It belongs to him. And it's impossible to watch it without just constantly thinking about what would this guy's career have been like? Or am I, do you feel that way too watching it? Yeah, I think that there are, when you think about like great performances or memorable performances by child actors, they usually fall into one of two categories. There's kids who are great at being kids like Macaulay Culkin in Home Alone. Or Haley Joel Osment in The Sixth Sense, right? I would say he's the second category where he's like incredibly precocious. It almost seems like an adult in a kid's body, like the way yep. his the way he reads dialogue, the way he seems to be interpreting the world. River Phoenix and Stand By Me is just like a full three-dimensional human being. It, it it feels like there's no filter between actor and performance. Like you what you get on the screen is like absolutely uncut. And I think that was a hallmark of his performances that that he did leave behind, whether it's like my own private Idaho or you know, something like Running on Empty, which I really love. Um, you know, these these movies that he left behind, like no matter what age he was, he had like an incredible raw humanity that was always on display. And like the stuff he's doing in Stand By Me is absolutely ridiculous. It's like off the charts how present and vulnerable he is, but also like weirdly cool. Like even though he's just a 12-year-old kid. And it, it's just, you can feel the entire movie jump up into another stratosphere when he's on screen, which is obviously a lot. And how handsome he is too. I, I, he's just so, yeah. everything about him, it's a complete package. And my wife and daughter are watching it last night and both of them are like, God, he was so good looking. You know, it's, it's he just had every single quality you would want if you were like, all right, we want a lead actor for the next 30 years. What, what would this person look like? It would be him. And what's crazy about it is Leo basically shows up I don't know. He goes on Growing Pains, late 80s. And then eventually he's in Gilbert Grape. And then he's in This Boy's Life. And he starts to have a real career, probably in the 91, 92 range. And it was really hard to watch Leo as his career took off, finally culminating in Titanic without thinking like, this is kind of what should have happened for R River Phoenix. And I think he had issues. 
pretty much within two years of this movie. He's, I think, 15 when he makes this movie, 14 or 15 when he makes this movie. By the time he's making My my Own Private Idaho, he's uh, he's having issues. Yeah. And yeah. he's battling them basically for the rest of his life. And he ends up dying at the Viper Club of an overdose. And um, I think it was a big reckoning for the movie industry and the young actors is the same way that the Lem Bias thing was a big reckoning in sports where it's like, Hey, cocaine, this just took Len Bias. Let's be careful. What are we doing? Um, I think with River, it was the same thing for a whole generation of guys. Yeah, hugely impactful death, especially on that generation of actors. I mean, I think you know, you've heard Winona Ryder talk about it. I mean, you know, obviously, it had a huge impact on his brother's life. I, in, one thing that kind of connects to that is that when you watch him, when you think about like these really great, great actors that we've had over the years, whether it's yeah, Daniel Day-Lewis or Leonardo DiCaprio or um, even to some extent Joaquin Phoenix, you know, I always think of those those guys as like on an island. Like you don't think of them as part of a crew or a gang or like they, they don't, like River Phoenix seemed like a really good friend. And you can yeah. see in the movie his facility with Will Wheaton's character and the other guys and even like he seemed like a sociable person in a real world. Not like I am a actor made in a Petri dish who is just going to go off and learn this part and then learn how to like be Abraham Lincoln or be Jack and Titanic or figure out the blood diamond. Not, not, not to knock Leo, but do you know what I mean? Where sometimes great actors seem almost unknowable and River Phoenix seemed like incredibly knowable in that way. Yeah. And he has, you know, he has that monologue about the, uh, the milk, stealing the milk money. And then the teacher basically yeah. lying about him so she yeah. could keep the money for himself. And it's like a four minute scene and it's about as good as anybody under 18 is going to do with this scene. And I think Leo had a couple moments like that too, over the course of uh, the first part of his career. It's so hard to find somebody, especially uh, an actor um, who could just kind of show off all the tools, you know, to borrow the basketball analogy. It would be, it, it's almost like when, you go back and you read this stuff about LeBron when he's like a sophomore or a junior in high school and, and, and the sports illustrated piece comes out and they're like, this is the total package. This is everything you would want in a basketball player. This guy has. And I think river and Leo are the only two guys in the last 35 years under 18 that you could have said that about where it's like, all right, check, let's check all the boxes of who can, how somebody can become an A plus list movie star they were the only two people that were gifted with the car wash package. And it was something that I remember I wrote about in my basketball book that it's, it happens so rarely in the NBA and in football and in baseball and in acting and in music where somebody gets the car wash package, where it's like, you go to the car wash and it's like, which, which section do you want to get for your car? And there's that one where it's like, all right, for $39.99, we'll do everything. Mm -hmm. And there's only a couple actors really in our lifetime that have gotten it. I really feel like he was one of them. And you, and this is the movie out of all the movies he made where you see it. Yeah. You, I mean, and you see little, little tastes of it. I mean, the, the idea that he could do my own private Idaho and also be the same person who played young Indiana Jones in last crusade and have that kind of range and have that kind of movie star magnetism, but also like real, real dramatic chops it's just, a, I mean, just even talking about it, 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 it's really, you think about all the stuff we missed out on. Yeah. The Indiana Jones was interesting because that was one lane that his career could have gone, right? It was like worst case scenario, he's Harrison Ford. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, that's like his worst case scenario. Best case scenario, he might be De Niro Pacino right. going that route. But worst case scenario, he could have a 30-year Harrison Ford career and right. just and we be saw, the lead and of we action saw, like, movies. The, it's interesting that that chalice of, of the that role is like, because that was sort of offered up to Shia LaBeouf like a little later. And I think, I, I think without getting too into the weeds on that, like he, he obviously is someone who child actor like did a bunch of blockbuster stuff, but also clearly had like real chops and then kind of went off the rails a little bit. Yeah. And I think there's a difference, like you pointed out between a successful child actor and a child actor who can make you kind of see what the future is for them too. And I, Portman is another great example. Like if you, you left beautiful girls and you're like, that person's going to win an Oscar. Like mm-hmm. you just, you kind of knew it. It was, she hit, she hit every kind of note you would want from a 13 year old actress. Um, yeah. It's interesting it that people who, bet on it. who project that way. Like when you think back on early Sean Penn performances. Yeah. Um, that's and another you're just good like, one. well, this guy's just like unfucking deniable. Like you, you did, they will have to like put this dude in a, a hole in the ground for him not to, to be something amazing. It's funny. I was trying to think of, I didn't, I was really trying to think of people like from the last 20 years that you could have said this about. And I don't know whether it's because our culture has changed and people get too hyped up now um, or we're making less movies that have good parts for people who are under 18 or whatever. Um, Yeah, you had asked me and Sean on text a little while ago about this. And I think he and I were both saying like Saoirse Ronan and Timothy Chalamet are probably like the best under 30 young actors right now. Um, and it'll be really interesting because Chalamet is going to be in and whenever movies come out again, he'll be in Dune, which is like his big blockbuster one. And so for a while, he's been kind of making more art house stuff. But like, I think that it'll be really fascinating to see what whether he can carry like a sci-fi epic like that. But even Chalamet, like I never could have bought him as Indiana Jones's son. You know, I, I think there were certain doors that just weren't going to be open for him with movie roles as good of an actor as he is. Right. And I think Shia LaBeouf was the same way where part of the problem with Shia LaBeouf was he was trying to do that River Phoenix Leo arc in the early part of his career. And I just don't think he was as talented as those guys. It's You can't really say River was a unicorn because I think Leo ended up doing a lot of the things we thought River was going to do. Mm-hmm. But um, but the potential of it and kind of the the loss of what we didn't get, not to mention like the guy died and how horrible that was. And you can even feel it with his brother who carries it to this day and won't even talk about it. And I think in a lot of ways feels like he's carrying the legacy of it. But then you think about that where you, you had these two incredibly talented brothers that obviously would have done at least one amazing project together at some point in their lives. But River was such a dominant force that that, that shadow kind of hung over the brother for a long time. You know, it was hard to take him seriously because he was always just River Phoenix's brother. It was like, well, he's always going to be that. Yeah, and it's like, I I think that that whole extra textual stuff, like cloud hangs over Stand By Me, sometimes making the movie a little bit, I mean, for a movie that is as as almost like effervescent as Stand By Me is, it's, it's incredibly dark when you start to consider all the other stuff that, you know, like just the fact that River's character you know from the first scene has passed away already mm. and has been murdered and and you know you're going into the movie with that and then there is the kind of the older brother plot line with John Cusack's character with Denny so it's just like it's got a lot of resonance well and then you think about where this movie fits in with the documentary that 
we made with HBO and Alex Winter. The Showbiz Kids is not about, oh man, here's all the horrible stuff that happens when you become a famous child actor. It's 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 way smarter than that. And it's way more subtle than that. And what's interesting about Stand By Me as it fits into the context of that movie is it fits a lot of the lanes for how this can go right and wrong, right? Like Will Wheaton basically becomes pigeonholed as the Stand By Me guy. And has talked about that openly and talks about that in a documentary where it's like people just knew him as Gordy. He couldn't break out of it. I think Henry Thomas was like that with E.T. to some mm -hmm. degree. Um, River, the way his career went, um, that's a lot of like the uh, the ill effects of what can happen with young stardom and getting a lot too soon and making a couple bad choices, getting derailed by them. Corey Feldman, everyone knows his whole story, but I think this movie really ties into nicely his real life, which was by all accounts, like his childhood was really miserable and and probably just as chaotic as the character in this movie ends up falling into movies, making a couple and gets thrown into the, the fast life of Hollywood, becomes friends with Corey Haim. They do that whole thing. And he's living like he's a 35 year old guy when he's 15. That's another way it can go. And then there's the Jerry O'Connell side, which is, the side that's not as sexy to talk about, but it's like, yeah, he's the fat kid in Stand By Me. Eventually, all of a sudden, 10, 12 years later, 10 years later, he's in Jerry Maguire as Cush. He's the quarterback. It's like, whoa. Yeah. Hey, he's handsome now. And he had a really good experience. He had a child actor experience that led to an adult experience and he's had a good career. And 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 so it's basically the four paths are all in this movie, plus the key for Sutherland path, which I guess you could throw in there too. Celebrity kid. Yeah, and also I think that 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 comes across in the film itself. Uh, you know, the the guys in this movie have talked about how the, their characters were essentially who they were. You know that that yeah. uh, Will Wheaton was bookish and shy. That Jerry O'Connell was kind of like a little bit of a class clown. That Corey was really that intense, and that River really was that fucking cool, and that he was that like he was that dude. All right, that's it for the podcast. Thanks to ZipRecruiter. Thanks to Chris Haynes. Thanks to Alex Winter. Don't forget about Showbiz Kids premiering July 14th, 9 p.m. on HBO. That's tonight. Catch it on demand starting uh, Wednesday. And uh, we're going to be back with one more BS podcast later in the week and possibly one more rewatchables as well. Stay tuned for that. Uh, enjoy the middle of the week. Stay safe. So